Hey everybody, this is Thomas, host of Cinema to the Letter here, uh, with a bit of uh, an intro before we get to the regular episode. Sorry, but this is going to be a bit of a, a sad note to start the episode on, but um, I wanted to dedicate this episode to my grandfather, who uh, passed away in the interim since we recorded this episode. He was a big fan of westerns, you know, we're talking about Rango today, which is a western, even though um, I'm very sure my grandfather did not see this film in his lifetime, and I'm not sure if he would have been a huge fan of it as uh, someone who was more of a fan of the John Wayne-esque Western, of uh, the John Ford, you know, variety kind of thing. Um, but just wanted to put this little dedication here at the top. Um, love you, Papa, wherever you may be now. But on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode's that atypical film known as Rango. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film in a series topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, an I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Because he doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and I feel so parched. I need to get a good sip of water that hopefully is here, and not a bunch of sand. Uh, hello, I am Brian, and uh, Thomas, you stole my bit. I was going to do a water bit where I was going to take a long sip of water and mention how this movie makes me really thirsty every time I watch it, for obvious reasons. Like, I'm just like, good lord, I need to have a giant bottle of water next to me while I watch it. True, true. Yes, it's a very thirsty movie in its own way. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're not the only ones here, Brian, because we have a guest. He is a censorship historian. He's the director of the upcoming documentary Aberration, the history of the NC-17 rating, and uh, the host of Sights Obscene over on YouTube. It is Saavedro. Saavedro, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I don't have a joke <laughs> immediately about Rango. I mean, there's a lot of jokes that I could make, I guess, but... Uh, Something that I made the other day on Twitter, which apparently it didn't take off and it kind of made made me mad, is that he actually says aberration in the movie. And I just like I said, me, whenever someone asked me the name of my documentary and it's just him going. Aberration. Aberration. <laughs> I'm so excited when I I've, I've seen this movie a million times and I was one of the earliest defenders. I'm going to be a hipster about it. Uh, I, because when I, when it came out, it was kind of controversial. It was good. It, it got, did like 300 million with, uh, middle America families like my mom. It was immediately controversial because it had language because it, uh, had smoking and, you know, just because of the harsher, darker themes and things like that. So even though it did well, it only barely did well because it costs so much, but, uh, I've, yeah, I've always had a, a, was a big fan of this. And when I heard that the other day. I, it was a, it spoke to me. Well, yeah, we should mention that. Like, so obviously with, uh, given I listed all your credits there, you're, uh, very much into the uh, kind of history of the ratings board 
and kind of how movies have been, you know, um, rated by the MPA, previously MPAA. Um, and uh, I'm curious, so when I sent you, like, the list of movies we're going to do for this season, you immediately latched on to Rango. Why don't you tell everybody why this one has kind of, like, a notable kind of ratings board element to it? Well, uh, there was a group in California in 2011. It was called Breathe California. And they basically started a campaign uh, and this big stink about how there was 61 instances of smoking in the film and how that was so much for a PG-rated animated film, especially one that um, was connected to Nickelodeon and Johnny Depp and Gore Verbinski, who had directed the Pirates films uh, and all of these other actors that were guaranteed to get someone to come see this movie. Uh, they were saying that, you know, essentially this was dangerous enough. The impression levels, I think that they estimated that there was 300 million impressions based off of Rango and the amount of smoking. So because of this, they, they stated that it should not be rated PG, but should actually be rated R. And this is somewhat unprecedented. There has never been a film, to my knowledge, ever been rated R solely for smoking. There, there might be. Uh, I might actually have it written down on a piece of paper somewhere, knowing me. I might actually have that somewhere. But uh, to my knowledge, you know, there's never been anything like that. So you would think at most they would say, okay, this needs to be PG-13, something like uh, Nine, the, right. the, the animated yes. film, or, um, you know, some of the, the darker DCU uh, animated films. Uh, but, you know, they, they went straight for R because they believed that this film was so thoroughly adult in its tone that even as an, you know, just as an animated film in general. And there's, if you look at it, there's a really kind of condescending tone to it J just because it is animated. You know what I mean? In any other film, and I actually, I did an investigation into this. I have some stats off to the side here. What I did here is I looked at Smoke Free Media's database, because if you're going to do anything, you have to use the numbers that they're going to use against you. Their database only goes from 2002 onwards. So let's say we, we just look at PG films, period, that have been released from 2002 onwards. This has 61 instances of smoking in it. It beats Rocky Balboa, which came out in 2006, which has 49 instances. Uh, it has more than Jaws, which was re-released re two years ago, and it has 50 instances. And it also has more than It's a Wonderful Life at 54. So we're just as just as a comparison of the bar that we're talking about here, it has more than Jaws, more than It's a Wonderful Life, and more than a Rocky film, more than a contemporary Rocky film, no uh, no less. In terms of animated films. Uh, it has two more than Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was released two years prior and had no issues. There was no controversy. And so I want you to think about this. And it could very well be the studio. It could be the names behind it. It could be the fact that Wes Anderson's a more esoteric director. Sure. Mm -hmm. Again, that's only two years prior to Rango, another Oscar contender. For, for animated feature and uh only you know only two less instances but again no issues 
the year prior to Rango, there was a French film called The Illusionist. It had 88 instances. Now, France is obviously a culture right. that, yeah. you know, every, <laughs> you know, there's, there's everybody's smoking. And that's, that's what most of it is. It's just everybody in the background is smoking. There's no actual characters up at the forefront smoking. Right. And then there was a Goro Miyazaki, the son of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. His son made a film called From Up on the Poppy Hill. And this, to my knowledge, is the animated film with the most. It has 239 instances. Based on how interviews with his father, I, I'm not surprised at all by that. <laughs> no, no. Not, well, and again, he is no slouch because I looked this up. Uh, the PG-13 animated film with the most instances of smoking is The Wind Rises. And there's literally a character in that film that just says, give me a cigarette, oh, right. give me a yes. cigarette, right. give me a cigarette. So again, it's no it's no surprise that both he and his son would have the most. For R-rated animated film, it's of course Sausage Party with 497 because there's Classic. entire scenes about smoking weed and things like that. So <laughs> right. the, the argument that was made here, and I have some of the articles kind of out here, Stanton Glantz, director of the Center of Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California, San Francisco. And he, this is a direct quote. He says, a lot of kids are going to start smoking because of this movie, specifically because of the 300 million impressions. I think I remember that, that because I, I do remember a lot of the controversy. I think I remember that exact quote, like around the time of the, the release of this movie. And I, right. I do feel like that kind of conversation kind of almost became a lot of the way that we talked about that this movie was talked about in a lot of ways, which is weird. And it's so bizarre, especially considering the actual movie itself. But yeah, it is such a weird kind of controversy almost surrounding this. Right. Movie. Especially when you consider like the most memorable thing, I think in terms of uh, smoking in this movie is the cigar bit with like the Ray right. Winstone Gila monster and Rango. And that's like not a very flattering depiction of like a cigar in that case. Well, and you know what's really funny about that is, and you are correct, first of all, so thank you for pointing that out, but that was flagged in particular as being specifically dangerous because the cigarette, the cigar ends up in the main protagonist's hands. So for what would end up being a couple of seconds of screen time, he has a cigar in his hands, puts it in his mouth. And, you know, he, he breathes fire and everything like that. But that was specifically noted as, as okay, he is he is tangibly contacting that, putting it in, into his mouth. And it, so we are crossing the line from just being, oh, only bad guys do this to the protagonist is also doing this. Now, as you stated, there is a subversion uh, because it obviously is not a flattering depiction and it's played for comedic effect. There is never any point where Rango says, boy, I really just need to light me up. A, you know, a... Is it like Fred Flintstone and Lucky Strike or whatever bullshit? Yeah, yeah. Takes, takes out a fucking pack of cigarettes and just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, just I got to have it. Right. And it, it's that's what strikes me. And one reason I think that it's not just the rating stuff that kind of interests me, but, you know, I, I am a smoker. I grew up in a smoking family. I gave up smoking cigarettes a few years ago. And uh, that was like a 10-year struggle. If anything, I learned smoking from my parents uh, just because they were multiple pack-a-day people. It did not come from animated films. Uh, I grew up in the age of seeing 
uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, where right, there's, yes. you know, the sm- Smoking Dog and um, Oliver and Company, Smoking Dog. Particularly Don Bluth movies around that time felt like they were animated on, like, cigarette ash-covered, like, cells and shit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, all of those – And but it wasn't just Don Bluth. It was also Disney. There was crossover. Right. Uh, and Di- Disney in particular, specifically related to this, something that they kind of also flagged is that the, the only other film up until this point, supposedly, which time is – and I just proved that was wrong. Uh, but – the only other movie that they could match to this at, for a smoking character in terms of instances was 101 Dalmatians, Cruella DeVille. Right. Who had right. six, you know, she's smoking in every scene. So up until then, in animation, the idea was you can have smoking, but it has to be done specifically by an evil character. And they cannot show the act of blowing out smoke. And obviously when Don Bluth came around, that kind of changed. You know, he he started experimenting with that, and you you get characters that have smoke being breathed into their faces and stuff like that. And again, it's from only the evil characters. So, Rango is a subversion in a lot of other different ways. I think, in particular, because you you don't just see Rango touching it, and you don't just see evil guys like the the Gila monster smoking. You also see, um, for all intents and purposes, heroes uh, smoking and doing chew and things like that and for me as a western lover as a, a smoker that's just texture you, you know we're, we're not talking about again there's they're not going out of the way you referenced the flintstone commercial yeah. uh you know we're, they're not going out of their way to specifically say hey put a fucking cigarette in your mouth chew that tobacco this is just texture and so the fact that we got a film in 2011 that is animated, has smoking characters, has uh, animals on the verge of death, uh, has themes about existentialism. Uh, that is incredible. We don't get movies like that anymore. Now it's all just like, hey, you can do it. You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's important. Li- exactly right. it is it is literally just been hey you can do it family is important believe in yourself believe in yourself for, <laughs> for the last 10 years in animation right. that that is it that's why you know having such an existential movie is so important and why it, it shocks me that people still don't give this film the, the credibility it deserves i think it has to do with nickelodeon I don't know. Sure. Even though, even though Nickelodeon saved the production, they came in when Verbinski ran out of money, which you know it, mm-hmm. we don't want to we don't want to admit something like that, but you know they did save the production. But I think because it has the Nickelodeon association, people just they're kind of like yeah, whatever. No, that's true. I think that's the big reason why like we're covering this as part of our one one Oscar season, and uh, this is our a for a typical choice for the season or season finale. And uh, this definitely feels atypical, like you're mentioning, just in terms of, like, the best animated feature category is very much, like, it's, it's a weird award where it didn't start until about 2001, where, of course, Shrek won. And we all love Shrek, and it's, uh, <laughs> of course, you know, controversial takes. Um, but I think what, what's interesting is, like, when you look at the best animated feature category since its existence, it tends to go to, like, what you're talking about, Vader, like, the more traditional 
kind of um, you know animated features. Like a lot of Pixar, obviously, that was kind of the joke for a while, is that Pixar kind of dominated that category. And in fact, this is only one of like three different examples of, or four different examples of like a non Disney related movie even winning because there's like Happy Feet in 2006, this movie. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and then last year with uh, Del Toro's Pinocchio. It was, like, the only ones in the history of the whole award that are, like, not Disney-adjacent to any degree. Like, it's it's really incredible considering this movie does truly feel like, despite it being, like, only about, you know, uh, 12, 13 years old at this point, it feels like a movie that just not would not get made in its current state by, like, a modern animation studio in particular. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's too many risks, I think, involved in yeah. a project like this. But for me, as someone that has dealt with a lot of existential conflict, uh, Rango kind of really speaks to me and speaks to the lost generation, so to speak. You know, the any, uh, the the people that grew up in the internet days and grew up on watching Nickelodeon. And I don't feel like this was made for younger kids. Because I was 21 when it came out. And... You know, it was really, I had a lot of questions about what were the, what the future was about. And, uh, you know, there's also themes in that movie about not just an identity crisis, but feeling like you're fake. Watching this movie still now, it's like that. And all of the movies that every time I hear about a modern animated film taking on a dramatic subject, it feels like they're trying to check off a list. The, a story like Rango, I feel like it had such a vision behind it. And it had such a, you know, everybody got behind it. It is one of the, the, the kind of issues with a lot of the current day, like Pixar especially, because they have the kind of like, what is it? They're like 12 point, like they're 12, like kind of, you know, like, uh, what would you call it? Like a... They're guidelines for stories and stuff like that, right? That feels a bit more homogenized at this point. Yeah, like it, it, it does feel a bit like that, and it feels like, you know, this movie is tackling a lot of those like adult themes of like, from a dramatic perspective, but also just the sensibilities of it feel like a a much a movie meant for older audiences. Like, I mean, especially with this being a western, which is a genre that doesn't, especially at the studio level, like doesn't really get made anymore, and especially for kids. And so I think with a lot of that elements, yeah, this movie feels even stranger, kind of like, you know, especially as a as a best animated picture winner, um, because, yeah, they, they typically go to Disney or Pixar or, you know, lately the kind of outliers have been stuff like Del Toro's Pinocchio, which I think is a really mm-hmm. great also like similar to this movie feels like a more adult movie and is tackling like darker themes and stuff like that. But still feels like it's can work for kids in a, in a, in a weird way. It's kind of a weird balancing act that like this movie does. And that, that movie also has, but like the outliers, I think that win best picture or seem to be these kind of, you know, Guillermo del Toro made the animated movie. And then like into the spider verse is this like really lightning in a bottle moment. Um, but yeah, it, it really kind of emphasizes how weird of a best picture winner or best animated picture winner this is. And how weird this movie's in a very weird place i think and it 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 does kind of feel like a movie that isn't discussed as much i think because of like it it is a western and it is yeah nickelodeon i think like 
they do put out stuff other than just like the SpongeBob movie. Like they put out the TMNT movies and stuff like that. But like, I, I think for myself at least, like I didn't see this in theaters. And I think it was mainly because it was a Western. Like, I have had a kind of a weird lifelong aversion to Westerns in a weird way that I'm only kind of now starting to get out of as I watch, like, a, a lot of older and a lot more popular Westerns. But, yeah, I remember, like, the kind of when I was a kid, the kind of Nickelodeon tag both being this thing of, like, oh, Nickelodeon's making that, but also, oh, that's a Nickelodeon movie. That, mean, that means it's for kids, right? That, would, that was kind of my my kind of... Uh, presumption as a kid but this is a really weird movie <laughs> I mean this is a very strange movie no for sure I think it truly fits that that a for a typical thing if nothing else because like it's weird when you consider like I mentioned the history of this which I, I kind of misspoke earlier in that like there were a couple of other like non-disney wins like I mentioned Shrek was the first one but then Spirited Away being the second winner it felt like kind of the initially, like, Best Animated Feature was like, oh, we're going to, like, actually give it to something that truly does something a bit different with the, you know, the animation medium. That, like, there's that's a common oh. refrain from, like, a lot of, you know, different animation people. It's like, animation is not a genre, it's a medium, and you can do, like, so much with it. But at the same time, that kind of homogeny that we're referring to just sort of um, really settles in, I think, following, you know, like, when Finding Nemo wins, like, the third year, and then we keep going forward, it kind of becomes, like, the Pixar thing, which Pixar often does try to handle kind of, like, more mature themes, but at the same time, th that's become its own kind of, like, branding, its specific version of that, as opposed to, like, Rango, which feels like just truly, like, a, a mad, crazy vision that, like, could only really come from, like, a Gore Verbinski being able to do this. Uh, and, yeah, we should probably just get into, like, Rango itself. So let's play the trailer here for Rango. Welcome, amigo, to the land without end. The desert and death are the closest of friends. We sing of his courage in magnificent song. But pay close attention, he won't be here long. Don't what? move. What? Here in the Mojave Desert, animals have had millions of years to adapt to the harsh environment. But the lizard? He's going to die. Ow! <laughs> what was that for? You're a stranger. Strangers don't last long here. So, uh, Rango came out uh, in 2011, March 4th, 2011, from, as we mentioned, uh, director Gore Verbinski, who is mostly known more for his live-action movies, like the Pirates movies, uh, but even before that, he's done stuff like Mouse Hunt, uh, was one of his earlier films, which was a kid's movie, but also a very weird kids movie <laughs> truly uh, a bizarre one um but he has a very eclectic kind of uh, directorial career and i'm, I'm curious uh, Savedra, what is your sort of opinion on verbinski in general as a director i am one of the few people that also saw mouse hunt in theaters and i loved it then i love it now 
I think uh, Verbinski is, I know on Twitter, people kind of say that he's like self-imposed director's jail or that something like that. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that he probably got too big for his own good because of the Pirates movies. I was a big fan. I saw also saw uh, the first two Pirates movies in theaters. The, those are the only two that I have seen. I have not seen any of the other Pirates movies. If you grew up in the Midwest, it was pirate everything. Everybody was a pirate. It was like a pirate, pirate costumes at Halloween, pirate, pirate and it, it, we were in high school. So every single drama kid was wearing pirate stuff. Disney was trying really hard to make that kind of like the boy equivalent of like their princess brand. It was nonstop. And because of that, and everybody is always like saying, you know, oh, where's the rum? And it like, it just, it was so much that I just tuned out from that point on. And it was not until Rango that I even gave a shit about Gore Verbinski again. I think that he... It's one of those people like Sam Raimi that in the 2000s, they got way too big, way too much money, way too much carte blanche. And I cannot blame them at all for where their careers went or what happened. I want the best for him, obviously. You know, we, we don't see directors like that anymore that are willing to take as crazy risks. You you mentioned Del Toro a little while ago. You know, we, we don't get people that are willing to not condescend yeah. to a child audience i mean this is the thing like because uh, i've been watching i, I rewatched all three because there's only three of them we all we all know this there's only three pirates of the caribbean movies they only made three it's weird um <laughs> <laughs> and i watched a few of his movies and i actually find the comparison to del toro like really interesting because they're both guys who are are real nerds about like genre shit they love like you know, Del Toro loves, like, creepy monster shit. Del Toro loves, like, that shit, too. But he loves, like, slapstick comedy. You know, like, one thing I, for I forgot about those Pirates movies. Because, like, I watched them when I was a kid. And they were, like, so omnipresent culturally. Like like you guys mentioned. Like, they're just... They were everywhere. They were just, like, the biggest thing ever. And I hadn't seen them in the longest time. And rewatching them, I forgot, like, oh, these are... A lot of this is just Looney Tunes shit. You know, it's him doing, like, mouse hunt type of, you know, funny, stupid slapstick stuff, but with, like, $100 million movies. And I, I find that so interesting, especially, like, him and Del Toro are guys who are very sincere in, in their love of genre and how they express, them, that, express themselves through, like, action movies and weird kind of, you know, big movies like that. And... I love him though. I love Gore Verbinski. I I, th I think like, I mean, you kind of mentioned like the idea of him getting too big and like, I, watch the third Pirates movie because like, there are elements of that movie that are insanely massive. I mean, the final like set piece of that movie, which is like the whole Maelstrom bit, which is maybe one of the most insane set pieces in a in a in a blockbuster right. in which seen. like two pirate ships are like having massive sword battles in the middle of a giant whirlwind yes <laughs> it's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, circling the drain of yes. the maelstrom yes. i was i was just looking now at his filmography again and i i feel like an idiot because i always kind of he's he's one of those guys like michael apted that you just you always forget you're like oh fuck oh fuck oh fuck you, you just you forget his 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 whole career I just remember he did he did the Lone Ranger too, 
and the Lone Ranger is like that. The final train sequence. It's just like, how the fuck does someone conceptually think right. of this? Let alone convince a studio that this is a good idea. <laughs> and you know, and even even I think Quentin Tarantino was just like, yeah, this is the fucking greatest action sequence of the year. I mean, it, it was awesome. You know, the guy has the juice. He, he, no one has ever said that he does not have the juice. I think that, uh, you know, again, it, it was like, it was almost like he had too much juice and he was showing up everybody else. And, and he probably exhausted himself on those Disney films and was just like, all right, guys, I'm, I'm done for a while. I mean, he hasn't done anything since 2016. Yeah, since uh, Cure for Wellness was his last movie. And he's like, a, he's one of those guys who's apparently had like a bunch of movies that fell apart. Like apparently he was going to do another animated movie that was like apparently something about cats in space that was going to be with Netflix and they dropped it. So he's just yeah. kind of been like, yeah, like circling around. He's one of those guys who's like been attached to projects. Like there was one during like the Sony leak, there was the reveal that like he was going to do like a spy comedy with Steve Carell that like completely fell apart as well. Um, stuff like that. And I think it's, it's fascinating because like, that guy has weirdly shaped blockbuster culture in such a big way with, like, that first Pirates movie, Curse of the Black Pearl. I oh, yeah. still remember around the time that was coming out and people just being like, oh, they're making a movie about, like, the theme park ride. Is this going to work at all? Even Michael Eisner was infamously like, no, that's not going to work out. It's got to be, uh, you know, we're going to put all our chips on the Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy. That's going to be the big one. <laughs> Surely, and then uh, just surprise everybody. I think you see a lot of like the bigger sort of like studio movies, even like some like the Marvel stuff, any of the superhero stuff, feels like it's kind of still trying to chase a bit of like that adventurous blockbuster filmmaking that Verbinski like really injected in like the new millennium. And I think like the big thing with him is is like you mentioned, Brian, like there's that kind of like Looney Tunes quality where it's like let's have a set piece start at like ground level and then spiral out into the most insane fucking thing possible and really take advantage of, like, our visual effects and even, like, how, like, cartoony can we make, like, live-action people be to any degree. And I think that's something that's sort of missing now where, like, the weirdly, like, the Marvel movies are trying to be a lot more grounded, but they still end up feeling far more cartoony than even any of, like, fucking Verbinski's movies do. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird looking at those Pirates movies because they are... Like, just watching them again, like, they are, number one, historical fiction movies, kind of? Right. Swashbuckling adventure movies. Creepy, like, pirate ghost stuff with, you know, Davy Jones and, like, all the barnacles and everything. They're romance movies. They are, like, they are so big. And he's doing all of this stuff. And it's it's one of those things that people people say this a lot, but, like, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't work that he's able to put all of those things, have like, you know, that that depth performance. It it's it's a weird one, but um, to have that mixed with like all of this weird like pirate ghost story stuff, it it, it all gels together so well because he has he has the juice. He just like really knows how to mix all this stuff together, and he kind of brings a lot of that stuff to Rango. But I think like those three pirates movies really feel like, and especially now as we kind of talk a lot about like, you know, Marvel kind of going on the downslope and, and things like that. Like those movies feel so modern still because like they have massive sets 
and just like so many insane like how the fuck did they do any of this like stuff with all like the ship battles and all that stuff and yeah it, it feels like a lot of modern blockbusters are still trying to chase what Gore Verbinski did because there's a tactility to it but it's wacky it's funny and yet it's it's very grim when it wants to be and when it can be it, it's a weird mixture and he just kind of like really nails all of that and he brings a lot of that sensibility to something like Rango where like I, I find this movie interesting because it's bringing a lot of that Looney Tunes energy and yet it's a straight up Western, right? Like he's making a, a real, like actual, like a, a love letter to the Western genre. Well, um, and a, a deconstruction of it too. Right. Right. So, and, and a satirization, it can be all of these things. And I think uh, the difference is that Verbinski wants to make a good movie and when a Marvel movie is being made or a modern blockbuster, making a good movie is not part of their priorities. Their priorities for a lot of these is to make money. And what makes money? Getting people to talk about it. And what gets people to talk about it? Having these heartfelt moments where, you know, what happened with Puss in Boots last year? Oh, the realistic depiction of a, of a panic attack. Everybody was talking about that. Love it or hate it, realistic depiction of a panic attack. I think it even was trending on Twitter for a while. But see, that's the problem is you have moments like that that outweighing the rest of the project. And it's holding our hands through stuff. And what Gore Verbinski and Guillermo del Toro, Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson, any of these people from that generation, they are from the generation of learning the hard moral lessons of reading the dark uh, fairy tales. So their version of morality is closer to what is realistic. That means that, you know, not every lesson is going to be easy. Not every lesson uh, is going to be spelled out. When it comes to these modern blockbusters, they are afraid to ask those questions. And again, this is going to sound a little bad, but it's because the movies that make a lot of money aren't often the smartest movies. They are for all intents and purposes, the popcorn pushers, the movie where stuff goes boom. Ship goes fast, stuff goes boom, people die. They do not require a lot of brain power. Now, the best directors are able to kind of subvert that and supplant an image into, you know, in, in, to an audience's mind. Disney is not interested in that. They're interested in, in making their ideas up front and saying, hey, we are for these things, and also we made this movie. Making them more marketable and palatable, right? As opposed to like this movie, like you mentioned, it has like such a rough texture to it with not just like the smoking element, but even just like the character designs here are like so abstract. Everyone's ugly. Weird. <laughs> so ugly. Everyone yeah. is ugly. It's so great. Everyone is ugly. I love it. It is like the design of this movie is bonkers. And it is so like... I, like, I, I would not describe this movie as, like, hip or, like, cool. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, like, especially now, I'd be, I'd be very curious to hear what people, like, kind of slightly younger than me think of this movie because it is very, like, not what people are into these days. Obviously, like, it's an adventure movie, and it's a, it's a Western. It has, all, like, so much fun kind of, you know, wacky set pieces and crazy characters and stuff like that, which appeals to kids, of course. But the plot of this movie and the, the 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 design of it and everything is really not meant for kids. And even I remember when this came out, like, 
being like, oh, everyone looks really creepy and they're all like bugs and like reptiles and shit like that. And it looked, it was very unappealing in, in a way at the, at the time when I was, you know, kind of younger. And I think that that's such a fascinating thing when you look at this movie because it's a big scale animated movie that is not really marketable and not really meant for like a huge audience because it's about like capitalism and the horrors of capitalism i don't know a lot of kids love the chinatown i'm sure like really dig on like oh man the two jakes i love it can we also point out just how gore verbinski was able to make politics in a pg-rated film exciting like he he actually he actually makes the story like we're invested in it whereas we're watching the phantom menace and we're like dude what the fuck are you talking about trade routes and I don't know, man. Uh, I was a little uh, kid. I'm just like, yeah, trade federation. I mean, a, a thing that I, th- I thought about like five minutes into this movie is I was like, right, this was like marketed for kids and everything. And it's, you know, it's got Johnny Depp doing a, a very Depp performance, which whatever. But like, I, like, do kids love like Hunter S. Thompson cameos? Like, is that what they like? Like, it's <laughs> right. such a weird way of like that's the first moment me watching this as an adult where I'm like, Oh, right. This movie isn't really made for kids in the sense of like, you know, kids will still enjoy this thing, but like, again, Hunter S Thompson and Clint Eastwood are your kind of like references. It's not really meant for like the young people. <laughs> well, and not just that you also have the smoking you have uh, within a few minutes, he he's holding his, his doll next right. to him and, and he oh, goes right. he goes are those real and he makes her slap him in the face so like literally from the very beginning we have an innuendo it, it shocked my family even then it shocked my mom she was pissed off because we we brought my younger nephews to this who were like 11 7 and 4 at the time and i had recommended this movie and there's only like a couple of hells and some dams it all feels very Western, though, like, oh, hell, like that kind of, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, even, like, right from the beginning, you have, like, the uh, the Alfred Molina character, the armadillo, who's been run over. And that feels like it would be, so right, upsetting. if I was a little kid, that would, like, <laughs> deeply upset me. It's um, insane. But at the same time, it feels kind of like it works in the same way that, like, when I was a little kid and we would watch, like, Looney Tunes on Cartoon Network or whatever, where there's a lot of jokes that, like, you don't get that fly over your head. There's enough of like that zany silliness to like still keep you invested as like a kid, even though it's at the same time kind of that danger as well. Like we'll get to the fucking Bill Nye Rattlesnake Jake, which feels like true like nightmare fuel for like a young child. <laughs> this upsetting giant snake man. <laughs> but I will say like this movie feels like it's like the audience for this movie, of course, is like a much older audience would would kind of really like this, despite like the kind of preconceptions of like it's animated, it's whatever. Like I think like if you sat like an adult down and watched this, like they probably would really enjoy it. But I think like for kids, at least like it, it does sit in this really interesting middle ground of like, there's some violent stuff, but it's not too much. There's some suggestive stuff, but it's not too much, but it's there. Right. Where like, as a, if you were like a, a young teenager, like it's the perfect movie for someone that age, I think, because like it has a lot of those darker elements, like there's guns and smoking and drinking and stuff like that, but it isn't, in a way that I think is meant for like a, a much more mature audience, if that makes any sense. Like it, it still feels like it could be for, for a right type of 
like teenager, for instance, where you can't see things that are too violent, but you can still see like some violence, like the fucking like the the armadillo thing is so upsetting. <laughs> it's like yes. so like a, a like a, an upsetting image. Um, but we also have like the the is it the rooster that has like the the, the arrow poking through his eye? Through like, his yes. eye, yeah. yeah. Like it's it has kind of like a bit gnarly imagery, but again, like you said, like through that Looney Tunes like lens almost. Also, growing up in the South and things like that, seeing an armadillo on the side of the road, split in half, yeah, just like that. very common, yeah. You can go outside and see a dead animal on the side of the road that has been split in half. So what rating do you give that? How much of a warning do you want to give to a family audience for that? You were talking about the character design. Something that I noticed on this watch through that I hadn't noticed because it had been a while since I had seen it. Uh, there's prostitutes in this town. Or at least they're yeah. prosti- there's prostitute coded. Uh, right. You know, I, I don't want to like cast dispersions, but they are wearing the brothel outfit. And uh, that's wild. The The fact that they were, they were willing to go that far with the texture of this town to say, even like to not admit it, but like show, hey, even, there's a, a brothel in this town. Even the prostitutes are heroes in this story is mind-blowing to me. It's so groundbreaking. Right, well, I, well, at the same time, referencing a lot of, like, the earlier Westerns that would have, like, sex workers to that degree. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. They're just texture in the town. They're not looked down upon. It's like Deadwood, you know? I, I kind of say, sometimes when I describe this to people, I tell them it's like Deadwood, but for, you know, for kids. It's like a Deadwood entryway for your, your children. And it's because, you know... The prostitutes in the town are given just as much credibility in some regard as some of the other characters. Not a lot, but they're in there. They are in right. there. They, they, they do a really great job of especially just making, like like you mentioned, like everyone in this ta- in this cast, like the, the character designs feel like so like dirty and ugly, but in like very unique, specific ways that make all them like stand out to some degree. Because I think that's another problem with like animation in the modern age is that like you get a lot of kind of like there's a specific kind of character design for like, especially like Pixar movies kind of have like a house style and yeah. stuff like that. That feels kind of homogenized versus like every single one of these characters looks so weird and distinct. Like just comparing Rango and uh, Isla Fisher's character beans who are both lizards, but look entirely different completely on yeah. like every level. They feel like truly different creatures, especially like how Rango has a lot more of like a bright color versus all of like the other characters because they've been like in the desert for so long or like truly like sun faded as character designs. I think it, it makes it so interesting. We just see like everyone has a unique, interesting kind of look. like, what would you guys say is your favorite of the different character designs in here? Like, especially like some of these smaller characters, maybe. I don't know why, but I really like, um, is his name Spoons? He's the guy, like the guy who's like always messing with the spoons. And oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I love that. Design. I don't know why. There's something about him that's like, it's that right amount of like he's kind of cute and like his face is all like smushed and everything. But like, again, like you said, like they're all so ugly <laughs> because they're just like they're they're anthropomorphized animals. It's a bit creepy, but I, I I've always loved that one personally. <laughs> he he's got the craziest line in the whole movie where he's like. I found a human spinal column in my feces. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the guy, the guy is just like, I would have that checked out if I were you. <laughs> um, my my favorite character, I love Beans. I love, uh, I've always loved Beans. I call my girlfriend Beans uh, because she's a lot like Beans. 
<laughs> there's there's lots to you know unpack there, but I just I love Beans. <laughs> I love Beans as a character. I've always loved her, but I really love uh, Angelique the Fox. Uh, she's just really funny with with her screen with the screen time that she has. She's uh, the mayor or whatever. He's like her aide. But there's this moment where uh, Rango is getting dressed in front of the whole town and stuff like that. And then the kid comes up and he, you know, wants the autograph and, you know, he gives him the gun. But anyway, uh, Isla Fisher, like Beans comes in and starts trying to interrogate Rango. And uh, he goes, oh, you know, this is Angelique. And she goes, I know Beans. And it, it just, every, <laughs> the, the, the disdain in her voice, it's so, it is the most perfect line reading ever. And I just, every, everyone in this in this movie is is funny to me but i also want to say that i love the little possum girl uh i'm i'm a sucker yeah. for cutesy characters that you know have they have the edge to them and as soon as she pulls out the guns i'm you know i'm again i'm just <laughs> i'm done like that's that's all i needed this cute little possum girl with her her guns and her braids in the hat i think we're yeah yeah it's just Perfect. That is 100% perfect character design. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, even it's Abigail Breslin doing the voice for it, but I mean, you wouldn't, it doesn't really matter, but it's just so, it's such a well done, perfectly designed character. Everybody in this movie is memorable. Um, I mean, I remember when I first saw this, I definitely loved uh, Harry Dean Stanton's mole character's design. <sighs> Yes. Just there's like that he has the blindfold and then he's even looks like very specific, like naked mole rat ish. With like the giant snout and stuff like that, but upon this watch, I gotta say I love. Um, I believe his name is Fergus, who is the bald eagle that has like the weird mustache. Oh, what a mustache! Love it. <laughs> and also shout out to Lou Temple, who's a great character actor who does a perfect Patrick Buttram impression. Who is like one of my favorite sort of like character actor guys. Who you've heard his voice in like Disney stuff and in like the, some of the old western trees. It's like nigh on to five years, oh, like sure, that voice. Of course. Love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Perfect impression. But yeah, I just love even that. Like with all these different characters, they do such a great job of really giving them like human attributes that at the same time don't feel like you know in more anthropomorphized like animated films of recent, where it feels kind of like generic as opposed to like the the Blake Clark uh, bullfrog one. Like, uh, the bartender guy, who's got, like, just, like, the big, giant, like, almost double chins and stuff like that. Or um, even, like, uh, Gil Birmingham as the crow. Like, they all weirdly kind of feel like they kind of have attributes of their actors, which we can talk about how, like, there's the weird way they made this movie. Where a lot a lot of the times, with, like, animated features, they would kind of do the storyboard process where they would just, like, map out the movie in storyboard format, almost kind of comic strip-ish. And then uh, they would do, like, animatics and then eventually get to, like, you know, the voiceover recordings and stuff like that. This movie had the weird thing where instead of having, like, all the individual voice actors in, like, vocal booths, they did, like, performance captured to some degree where, like, they would have the all the actors kind of come together in, like, a big white space. You can see footage of this. Like, all the actors come together in a big white space and actually kind of, like, act out the scenes that would be used as reference. They didn't have, like, tennis balls and shit, like, stuck to them, like, that kind of motion capture. But they actually would, like, act out certain bits of this. And you can see a lot of, like, that, and particularly the way that, like, characters interact with each other. Like, you look at um, when Rattlesnake Jake and Rango interact with each other, you can see Depp and Bill Nye perform that scene. And they're still, like, kind of, like, you can see them referencing certain things that, like, Nye does while circling him and stuff like that, while also integrating, like, obviously the weird animal-like proportions to these characters. And I think that really shows off in the movie. 
it feels really unique for an animated film how these characters even interact with each other in particular because these people are reacting to each other in a traditional animated film everybody is sitting in a booth and you know they're recording at different times probably sometimes on completely different continents you know they're just sending sending their stuff in via email and getting a check for it later uh and so when you have that natural reaction you're able to play off the intensity of an actor like bill nye you know who who is an intense guy and is able to bring that gravitas uh, to a role that's needed like that so it, it's it's a fascinating thing to that they use the motion capture and i believe it was roger deakins yeah. uh you know famed cinematographer my boy roger deakins fellow podcaster roger deakins hey i mean you know him and michael bauhaus and vilmos jigmond and uh you know a couple others those are those are the the top guys you know those are the the best that you could possibly get and and deacons being involved with this it elevates it and you get that sensibility from the cinematography from and this film it feels if you look if you watched this and a movie like uh inside Luland davis side by side you would be like oh yeah they were definitely conceptualized by the same cinematographer because of the same cross phase and transitions and the setup of shots of the way that the the faces on the screen the way people are framed and everything it's like you know you can tell like deacon's had his eye on it particularly with like the whole scene where like rango after he's been like rejected and he's like walking around like when he's walking on the dunes and then going across the road and like all the lighting is like captured on him it feels like you know very reminiscent of even like a no country for old men in terms of like that kind of like stark like almost naturalistic lighting despite this being in obviously like animated and completely like fake it feels like so natural despite that I'm I'm watching a lot of the Coen Brothers movies right now, so I, I'm kind of like really tuned into like the way that Deacons shoots things, like the way he does a lot of landscapes, the way he does like shot reverse shot and stuff like that, and it it feels very Deacons-y, even though it's an animated movie. I think this movie is gorgeous. Like I I think it's like a really really stunning movie, like still to this day, and and like especially the way that it was made of this kind of like. You know, yeah, like you said, like the kind of motion capture, but you know, we're, they're just using it as reference. Even as someone who, like, I've seen a lot of behind the scenes of like animated movies and stuff like that, I still don't, I don't understand the way animated movies work. And this movie really doesn't help that at all. Like, it really just doesn't help my understanding of the way that these movies are made because this movie, like, I, I would have thought, and I, I think I, I, until kind of recently when I, uh, when I watched it like last year, I thought that it was all like motion capture. Like I thought it was like a, a Tintin or like a Polar Express Christmas Carol kind of thing. And to find out that it's not that is even like more insane to me. Cause this movie looks, well, it looks better than all the Zemeckis mocap movies. Tintin is a masterpiece. So not that one, but it looks really incredible. Like the, the kind of detail and the, like, you know, the detail in all the characters I think is really important. And like every single one of them, feels so well detailed like i don't collect like figurines or anything but i would kind of want like a figurine of all of these little characters like the little harry dean stanton guy character and like a you know just all of them because they're so well detailed and i think that this movie still looks really incredible even though it's you know 12 
13 years old and a lot of, especially a lot of 3D, like, CG animated movies from, you know, that time are kind of starting to age a bit more. And I don't think this has aged, like, at all, weirdly enough. It, uh, like, one of the things I love about this movie is the way that a lot of, like, real objects are used. Like, I love the, when he's when he's running away from the hawk and he runs in, like, the Pepto-Bismol uh, bottle. Yes. That's, like... That's an outhouse, which is a great gag. Phenomenal gag. <laughs> right. But I love that kind of stuff. Like, one of the buildings is, a mail, is, like, a mailbox and stuff like that. Right. And it all looks really great. Like, the texture work and everything on it looks realistic, but still quite stylish in that way that, like, we love with all the character work and all that stuff. Um... But, yeah, I, I just, like, was really struck by how gorgeous this movie looks. Like, it's just a really stunning movie. Something interesting is ILM is also involved in Rango. Right, it's the first feature film completely animated by ILM. Yeah. 14 years prior to this would have been Spawn. Oh. Uh, and that's when, you know, a, a bunch of animators from ILM, you know, they got fired, basically, from because there was an incident at Skywalker Ranch. George Lucas found out that these animators were smoking in his office. He fired them all. They leave, make Spawn, and Spawn has both the best animation of its day and the worst animation of its day. I mean, it has the the cloak in that movie looks fucking awesome. The the outfit in that movie looks awesome. But then you got Malboja at the end. All the sequences in hell look like sub PS1 shit. Yeah, Yeah, no, even worse. (laughs) Don't, do not. I said sub PS1. Yeah, I was going to say, dude, don't you dare fucking discredit my beloved PS1 because that boy could could do better. They ran out of money and it is very, very obvious. And you hear, because again, Spawn wasn't one of my favorite movies. You, You hear their commentary track and they're like, Oh, well, conceptually, the reason why Satan's mouth is so much larger than his upper mouth is because it wouldn't work weight-wise. And they, they're trying to, like, explain, and it's like, dude, you just right. fucked up. Your design sucks. Shut up. From the late 90s all the way to late 2000, we were, we were not only working on the CGI, we were we had a weird mix of the best and worst. And some of these some of these movies featured both. It is such a battle for a lot of those movies to have animation that holds up the whole movie, you know. And because again, there's always one part that always is just just like terrible, a terribly rendered character or a terrible sequence because they ran out of money. But somehow, despite all of the issues that we've talked about so far, all the technical issues, the issues with money, issues with uh, getting actors involved and stuff like that somehow it works in spite of itself yeah and this movie doesn't have a a section or like a character or a set piece or anything like that that kind of stands out as being like of lesser quality or anything like even like i mean i, I don't know when you guys want to get to the the flight of the valkyries sequence which is just fucking bananas but that sequence is just like stunning it's just incredible it's true like great visual storytelling it's something that like i think verbinski also doesn't get enough credit with in terms of like his live action movies that have a lot of cg yes like the pirates movies or even like the ring uh which has a lot of like cg elements that like really blend seamlessly like he does such a great job of like really making all that stuff feel like grounded even in this like completely cg animated form like 
all of these characters, despite the fact that they are CG, there's none of that kind of like sort of herky jerkiness that you can get with like completely computer animated movies. It feels like it has like kind of the fluidity of a 2D animated movie, despite the fact that like these characters are CG, right. like that Ride of the Valkyrie sequence you're talking about. Like, that. like all those characters have like these like really unique, weird designs that like really blend together wonderfully in a sequence like that that has like a lot of the propulsive action. Like, it's real, like actual storytelling through the action set piece that we're getting. And I think that's something that like a lot of other um, either, you know, live action animators that do transition over into like uh, computer animation. Like you mentioned Brian earlier with like the Zemeckis um, and those uh, motion capture movies, they all feel like so stiff and so awkward and dead as characters versus despite some of these characters seemingly being like almost like a corpse in terms of just how like they're, they're rendered like their actual design. They still feel like so lively and so vibrant um, like you mentioned with like the with that right of the Valkyrie sequence, there's stuff going on with like characters who are on bats, and then they're like zooming in, like almost doing like trench run Star Wars shit coming it's... up. But then there's also like even on the like the the wagon, how like like there's somebody on top of the roof. There's like Isla Fisher, it's, like the Beans character, kind of like um, hold this and then like smashing somebody in the Punching face. Punching everyone. Like yeah. Yes. I this this entire sequence. I guess we're, we're on it, so we'll, we'll get into it a bit. This is. This entire sequence is like crack to me. It is just so unbelievable. Like I really like because when I first watched this movie, which was actually kind of recently, like a couple of years ago, maybe I I found the structure of it quite interesting because I think like earlier we mentioned like how how Rango kind of stumbles into this story and like there's already stuff kind of happening around this town and everything and. But this this sequence when we got to, when you get to it in the movie is so riveting, which and it and it's just also just so cool, like it, and there's no like kind of like way to describe it other than just cool where like they're riding bats, <laughs> you have like these like mole creatures riding bats, and it's set to like you know Flight of the Valkyries, which is you know well the build up the build up to it, the build up right. to it that that is what I think. It's like it's like uh, watching a, a bullet get fired off. There's so, there's really there's this, there's the tension building up to it, and then as soon as to kind of like describe for the the listeners, I suppose there's there's a moment essentially where Rango is tasked with we we haven't even described what the movie is about. <laughs> no, <laughs> but but essentially the the movie is you know aside from a million other things, the movie is about. You know this iguana rango or a lizard or whatever he he wanders into this town dirt and the 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 town basically is predicated on the fact that water is their currency so water is what is held at the bank and uh everybody so is crazy <laughs> yeah every everybody is poor uh it, it is and again because this is a western town everybody is pathetic uh, and destitute, so their entire life savings, so to speak, are tied up in the water supply of the bank. But at one point, story-wise, uh, the water supply from the bank is stolen. And Rango, in his uh, infinite stupidity, or wisdom, I guess you would say, to some degree, he becomes the town sheriff. And he has to go after the bandits who supposedly stole the water. And the moment with the flight of the Valkyries, which is uh, the point I'm trying to get to, is that he shows up, presumably with this gang. He he has been hunting them 
with the other members of his posse. They finally get to him. They think that they have the upper hand. Uh, they have the guns drawn and everything like that. And he said, you know, we have your you and your entire family surrounded. And his answer to that is, uh, you know, my entire family. And then they all rise out of the ground like zombies. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so <Yeah>. insane. <laughs> and that that right there, I, I, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry for that really long buildup, but I, I, I had to describe for our audience what happens after that, because it really is just like watching a bullet get fired off from that point on yeah. it is non-stop action for probably almost five minutes and i mean yeah. it must have been the most insane sequence to animate because everybody is moving uh there's constant transitions in and out of stuff my favorite shot is when you find out that the the little rat dude that we were talking about the spoons guy uh it it pans out and you see that he's on top of a road runner uh, you know that's so clever and such a visually appealing, you know, like you were saying, that's crack. It's it's just like there's so many levels to that uh, of, you know, just cuteness and thought that would go into something like that, that he would be the right proportion. And what else would he ride in a situation like that but a roadrunner? There's also just, the I think, the element of, like, this sequence is insane and there's so many crazy camera movements and like it's follow it's following all these characters really fluidly and it's just that thing of like the sequence is not like impossible to do in live action i'm sure with cgi and shit you could do it but it is it would be so difficult it'd be so like hard to do and it's one of the things i just love about animated films is just like there's no limit to what you can do like you can make this insane crazy sequence where bats are flying and like my favorite shot, I think, in, in this sequence at least, is, like, you get this, like, really wide shot of the, the wagon, and, like, they've thrown, like, TNT, and you see, like, just explosions on, like, the periphery of the screen, and, like, the wagon's just shaking, and it just looks incredible. But it is just the thing of, like, it, it's, it, it's something you can't do in live action, and because it's animated, you can just go as, as insane as you want. Right, and, and they take advantage, like, truly, like, you could technically follow any of these individual characters, like, through this sequence and get, like, a satisfying sort of, like, story payoff off of them. I think that's what's so interesting is that right. everybody's, like, doing something. But it's not in the way that it feels, like, too busy. Because animated films can also have that trouble, where it's like, oh, yeah. all these characters are doing just zany shit, but there's, like, no actual, like, cohesion. This one has the, like, the very basic thing of, like, they have the water tank, they're moving with it. And, uh, you know, this uh, family of, like, moles with their bats is trying to, like, chase after them. And even though, like, that sequences end up where it's like, oh, wait, no, they didn't actually have any water in it. This is, like, literally like, the one guy's just like, oh, I found this tank in the middle of the desert. Then why'd you bring it over here? <laughs> and stuff like that. It all kind of becomes for naught. But I think it's just, like, it, it ends up uh, still having, like, an interesting kind of, like, context. It's like, where they went through all of this trouble to realize that, like, it's not here. And then you find it, like, the actual true villainous nature of, like, the mayor character, um, played by Ned Beatty, which is, like, such a great fucking use of Ned Beatty. Like, we haven't talked a lot about how... The cast for this movie's fucking insane. Stacked. Like, really. Stacked, Stacked with, like, so many fucking, like, great people. Um, it was spoiled fucking rotten. Spoiled rotten. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. just... The, the comparison that I said earlier about Deadwood, I mean, it's not just surface level. You also have, like, Timothy Olyphant's actually in the cast. And oh, right. Right. You know, he and he's playing Clint Eastwood. Yes. So I mean, it's 
it's it's it's about as on the nose as you could possibly get. I mean, and you it's got a- you got Ray Winston, you got fucking Bill Nye, you got Harry Dean Stanton. Right, you know this is one of his few animated films. Yes, this, you you know uh, you got fucking Stephen Root. My boy Stephen Root Hell is in yes. this fucking movie, and guess what? <laughs> He's playing a Stephen Root character. That character is ripped straight out of like a fucking. This you is, know you could you could see him in anything. Right, he plays a couple characters to be fair, because he plays like the doctor hair. He plays the squirrel who's the banker. Who I'm like that's the one where it feels just like oh that's totally Stephen Root. Yeah, hundred percent feels like yeah. a Stephen Root character. Yeah. Well, this is kind of the weird thing with his like this kind of quasi mocap nature of the way that this was made where like you watch like those mocap movies even like Tintin which I love and even though the characters are very stylized you can still tell like oh I, I know what actor's playing that like I, I know that Jamie Bell is playing Tintin even though it looks like Tintin but like there's something about because it's mocap like you still see the actor in there and there's a few characters like that, like the Stephen Root character, or like the Ray Winstone character, which I love Ray Winstone, but that character looks—he's a big lizard, and he looks like Ray Winstone. He looks more like Ray Winstone than weirdly like his character in Cats. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> oh god. Even yes. even the Harry Dean Stanton character. Kind of yeah, but like the, with everyone else, I think around the cast, even like Depp, it doesn't feel like you're just watching the actor do that performance, you know, which it can often kind of, I think happen with a lot of mocap performances, but like, you know, everyone feels like their character. It doesn't feel like you're watching the actor, but just through like all these filters, like, like in like a Christmas Carol where you're just like, Oh, Jim Carrey is playing how many roles? And you're just looking at every character. You're like, Oh, that's Jim Carrey in there somewhere. That's ugly. (laughs) And I'll, I'll also say, the the fact that you get Bill Nye and Ray Winstone and Harry D- Dean Stanton, Timothy Oliphant, Stephen Root, that is atypical. Because traditionally, if this was made by Pixar, it would be Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake. Uh, you know what I mean? It would be. That's true. It feels like a Western cast. Like it, like it, you could put these actors in a Western and be like, these guys fit exactly the aesthetic right. of, of, of a Western genre. As opposed to like the sort of the, I think of that more in like the DreamWorks way of like we're getting a celebrity and we're yeah, mainly selling right. like animated character almost looks like the the actual face that we're selling here and you know we're selling on look look there they are in the VO booth next to their character everybody exactly you see fucking Mike Myers right <laughs> and that goes back to the fact that this is story first uh, this isn't about selling Rango action figures it's not about pushing the Rango TV series. It's not about, you know, selling Rango ice cream. It's about Rango. I buy Rango ice cream, though. Let's be clear. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it tastes like dirt, and I'd love every second of it. Tastes like yeah. snake venom? I don't know. It, it probably, <laughs> they could probably successfully have made one that was a dirt, uh, Ben and Jerry's Rango ice cream dirt. That feels like a Nickelodeon note. Like, can we sell that? Yeah. Like, kids love dirt <laughs> and goop. Let's do that. Yeah. (laughs) The point I'm trying to make is that that was not the focus of this. And when you are story first, you are able to add in all of that other stuff later. And I guess I can kind of shit on illumination here for a second. Oh, please. Those are not, (laughs) those are not story first movies. Those are meme, meme first. 
movies. And toy and merchandise. And toy and, and like merchandise. And this, which is weird because this movie, like, again, like I said this earlier, like, weirdly kind of marketable in that way. Like, you could make toys for, like, these very distinctive, like, uh, character designs and everything but it it isn't only the type kind of dorks of like us would buy maybe the coolest character design of all time which is rattlesnake jake and i would that would be so cool as like a toy but like he's a gigantic rattlesnake his like his torso and everything is filled with like these like uh, uh what do you call them? like bandoliers of like bullets right. and then his tail is a gun <laughs> Because a machine, yeah, a Gatling gun, right? <laughs> it is just such an insane character design, and like, yeah, genuinely scary. How many other characters can you think of that are part gun? You have like, <laughs> you have Ash in the Evil Dead. You have uh, Rose McGowan's character in Planet Terror. You know, right. there's there's not very many characters that are part gun, let alone in an animated film. So that is such a a weird bold move to to make a character part gun and a an animal it, it's such right, a one lovely... that has no like limbs like having just like their t- the end of their rattler tail be a they shotgun. are a gun they are yes. a gun <laughs> it is it's part of the thing that i think is really we, we, like we talked about it a bunch of this movie but like not only would that never get made today there's lots of like, conversations of like the whole like animation is only for kids kind of thing, which I obviously disagree with, but like, I think often that whole like animation is cinema thing. And then people will post like the Mario movie or whatever, you know what I mean? (laughs) Whereas this, whereas this feels like genuinely a movie that is like trying to do something really interesting with animation because you could never do this in live action. You can have a snake with a gun in live action. Come on. And I, I don't know that that it, it's just such it's so special and I think like just yeah the Bill Nye character specifically like really hammers home just how weird this movie is for being this like quote unquote adult in in some ways right of having a, a big snake a big scary snake with a gun and he's very menacing and he's like I love he's he's got like a like a mustache on his like skills yes. it's so fucking cool he really but... looks like lee van cleef in like the right once upon yeah. time in the west and so like yeah and it's it's like drawn on so it's almost like a uh it, it's almost like a john waters mustache but it works <laughs> right you know yes. <laughs> you know it's like pencil thin on there yeah. but but because it the rest of the character design is done so well you it just you're sold by it it doesn't yeah. come off as goofy or anything Mm-hmm. And I love, I just love like, uh, I'm skipping skipping ahead a bit to kind of the that that last set piece. Kind of speaking on Rattlesnake Jake, I just love that the final kind of big set piece of this movie is the villain who we've already described as a giant rattlesnake with a gun for a tail, and this lizard are having like a, a standoff, right, a duel, and then he he's shooting those bats that we saw earlier like out of the sky. And it's just, it is an insane sequence and insane in, in a, in a kid's movie. I'm using air quotes for kid's movie, but like, it's such a weird final set piece for this movie and feels so kind of like the, the fight of the Valkyrie sequence, which going back on that very briefly, I for, we forgot to mention that there is a banjo cover of flight of the Valkyries in there right which which, is... which I, I love how it's like initially you hear like the Hans Zimmery like orchestral version and then you see like one of the moles on like the bat 
with a banjo, and that starts off the banjo yes. version of it. This weirdly, I, I'm sorry to go on a, a tangent here, but weirdly, what this movie reminded me of, even though I know this movie came out afterwards, is like Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, it's kind of just how again, like this movie feels like it's kind of, I mean, especially that that sequence having the guy playing the banjo be like a you know in universe thing. There's the there's a sequence where he, they the mayor has like the 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 tire like the the valve and he's like holding it up like like in Mad Max it's yes yeah it's a weird kind of a weird reference point for this movie which again is like marketed kind of for kids but it has all these weird elements of like it's referencing all these older westerns and these kind of you know movies that you wouldn't expect or even the older Mad Max movies were apparently an influence on Verbinski and you can tell right. especially like any like the bigger desert sequences feel kind of like the earlier uh, Mad Max movies yeah, it's so interesting that this movie is, is pulling all of those references, which is something, again, that you wouldn't really get from a lot of animated movies, especially meant for children, of like, well, what's your reference point for this? Oh, you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, you know, Magnificent Seven, kind of these, like, old westerns, which is, like, again, like I said earlier, like, a very unhip choice. But again, like like you're saying, like, for the story it really works and it really kind of makes this feel like a, a great Western and a proper Western, I think, which is, I think so fascinating. I do want to circle back a bit to like, we were talking about like the performers kind of element of it. There's someone we've kind of referenced a couple times who we haven't really dove into, even though he's our main character. We should, I, cause I think it's kind of important in terms of just the context of this person's career. Um, this is not a Johnny Depp stand podcast. Even before, like, if you want to, like, remove any, like, all that, you know, the allegations and stuff about him and whatnot, this was, I think, the last time the sort of Johnny Depp persona really worked, I think, for me in the movie. Because, one, it's kind of removing yeah. his typical kind of, like, live-action elements. But also, Rango feels like there's kind of that energy that Depp was kind of known for from, like, his Jack Sparrow days and stuff like that. But it feels like a much different character. Rango feels much more like this guy who, despite having, like, kind of, like, the eccentricities and, like, silly bits that Depp would do, he feels a bit more kind of, like, someone who you could actually emotionally invest in, where you see him initially as, like, this completely isolated pet. Like, I love the opening where he's just in this, like, little uh, environment that is, like, completely isolated from anybody, and he's literally interacting with, like, the fish and uh, the the doll that we were mentioning earlier. Um, but you really get a sense that, like, he finally finds himself in this Western facade that he's kind of created. And then once he, like, gets casted out and he actually kind of, like, realizes, well, you know, thanks to Clint Eastwood, that, like, he can actually be an actual hero by his actions and not by, like, what he claims to do. I, it feels like an actual arc that feels believable that Depp plays pretty well. And they, like, actually use his sort of, like, his persona to kind of actually, like, develop this character in an interesting way. As opposed to, as his career kind of went forward you would see that, like, in Lone Ranger and some of these other things, it feels just like Depp's just kind of doing dumb Depp shit. And it's, like, not nearly as interesting. It feels like he kind of got high off his own supply after this point. He represents the extreme opposite end of what can happen to a pretty 80 boys actor who is given the world. And the absolute positive outcome is you get a Robert Downey Jr. And the absolute negative outcome is that you get Johnny Depp. They both come from the same era. Uh, a lot of them were in mm -hmm. similar movies uh, and uh, they were from the same groupings. So this isn't too, too out of the realm of uh, the imagination. And they also uh, similarly fucked up big time 
in very publicly and were given a second chance with a major franchise. It, it was all about timing for Johnny Depp. You know, he had been famous for so long and had dated so many people for so long and had so much money and then he fucked up and then all of a sudden he gets the Pirates franchise and he gets an Oscar nomination. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, everybody and their brother is quoting him. And the massive thing that he had in the 80s, but a million times worse, because now all of a sudden it's the internet is involved. And so I don't think anybody could survive from that. I don't think anyone. Any, and, and we have the proof. We have the, the stats for this. Most of those actors did not survive that. They're not doing well. <laughs> They're not, you know what I mean? Like, if you... You look at their the, what's going on for with a lot of these people. They're, you know, the growing up in the internet age has destroyed a lot of those the people that were the first. Kanye West is another guy that was a major, like uh, casualty. Britney Spears, major casual casualty of that era. You know, again, these people are for different reasons, but uh, some you know, more their own making. Like I would say, a Kanye or Depp is. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Britney, Britney is a different situation. But, uh, you know, these are all people that, you know, the, it did not go well for everybody. And because Johnny Depp had that fame at the right, at that time, he chose madness. And Robert Downey Jr. got that opportunity. He chose a completely different life. He did the best possible thing that he could do, which is straighten up. And, and and make billions of dollars off of those right. Marvel movies. And he got back this last year to the place that yeah. he had been trying to get back to the whole time, which was making serious, dramatic works. And he gave, you know, his best performance in decades. Yeah. You know, and that's what he wanted to do the whole time. Whereas Johnny Depp, what did he do? A couple of years after he makes... As you were pointing out, you know, you you said that this is the last time that the the debt persona works. A couple of years after this, he's making fucking Mordecai. I was going to mention yep. Mordecai. <laughs> like you have Rango, who is like an actual developed character, versus you have Mordecai, where it's like I don't know, he has a mustache, and that's the bit. Yeah, and it is interesting, especially like Depp kind of has an attempt at getting back with like. Remember when there was Oscar talk around like Black Mass? That was and it. it was like, oh, it's Johnny, yeah. it's Depp's year. He's gonna get the Oscar, and like, no, he, no, the movie's awful, and it's a piece of shit. But like, especially after like Pirates, anytime he's in a movie, it's him doing like a thing, a bit, a voice, yeah. a character, a wacky kind of thing, and it just like doesn't work like ever, like in like any of those movies, especially like into the woods or Alice in Wonderland or shit like that. Like it just doesn't work at all. And no one likes it. That on top of the personal stuff is kind of why I he's like always he just... doing one of these. Right. He's this is right. Delivery. <laughs> Which is really crucial because like that was the whole uh, kind of story about Pirates of the Caribbean, Chris, the black pearl, like the legend of it was he was doing his Keith Richards impression which Savredro did a brilliant job of imitating this <laughs> a second ago. And everyone, when they saw the daily, like Michael Eisner and all these other people were just like, what the fuck is this? This is dumb. We got to like get him to do something different or fire him or whatever. And Verbinski was like, no, let him do his thing. And then that character became like so massive and that movie became so massive and everything. But everyone's like, well, we can't question it now. Right. Like this, the, just let him do whatever the fuck. And then that's the problem that like that spirals into like what we eventually would get. 
I would say his last kind of good performance is like something where he's not doing anything of his bits, which is like public enemies where like, I'm sure Michael Mann really like, you know, was like, Hey, stop that shit. Like, no, you're, you're, you're in a real movie. And that, but no, I want to play like Mick Jagger, Mike. I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But that feels kind of like the most controlled he's been in like a while recently. And like, but like kind of what you were saying, like, the thing about Rango that works is like there are bits in this where I'm just like oh god it's Depp like and I really like I hate it a bit you know because I'm just like I can see like I can see Depp through this performance but for the most part yeah you're right like because again like I mentioned earlier the kind of mocap like it it hides him in the role and also I think he's doing a lot of really interesting like I love how pathetic he is up at first and he like throughout the movie of course he's just very kind of like doesn't know what he's doing kind of mr magooing through these situations <laughs> right but like unlike a captain jack sparrow for instance which like having just rewatched those movies i would say that performance holds up like 70 percent of the like you know of it holds up that character has that kind of thing of like oh he's kind of a loser but he kind of figures it out and he's kind of like actually a good pirate but with rango at least I don't know. There's something a bit more likable about him and, and and kind of in his naivete or his stupidity or whatever, like there's something quite like likable about him and you kind of want him to succeed a bit more. Well, in the very beginning, we realize that he's alone. He's got nobody. He's got no friends. So, right. he, so we, from the opening of the movie, we are made to sympathize with him. There's nobody around. Nobody will love him. His life is a lie. He lies to himself. Well, but he is, he's working on a, on a one act and he's got like, <laughs> yeah. a comedy. I love a musical. That bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I And like a lot of the, like those bits, those kind of little funny bits, which can kind of go either way, right? They can go like Depp going full, like, uh, what, like there's, there's like one bit where he's kind of like walking through and he's like, and I'll take a latte and a cappuccino and all this stuff. And that's a bit where I'm like, okay, Johnny, like that's, that is down. The- that's one of the only lines I hate in the movie. Uh, maybe the only line he goes, uh, I need a latte and a urine sample. Make sure you don't mix the order up. Right. Yeah. But right. Like that that's the only bit I think that feels kind of like, okay, like he's, he's putting a little too much onto this. But the rest of the performance, I think, is pretty good, weirdly enough. I think particularly there's a bit early on when like he walks into dirt initially and he sees everybody doing different walks and he like imitates their walks. And you yeah. can see in that behind the scenes footage, like Depp actually did a lot of like that kind of thing. I think the thing is, like, that kind of works a bit better, like, his sort of, like, the angle that Rango's like, oh, I want to be a performer, I want to, like, you know, do, like, the one act and whatever, like, that actually helps out with, like, him actually wanting to fit in, because he's like, I can, like, blend in, as he says earlier in a certain bit, um, like, he, it feels like it's him trying to just kind of, like, become a part of a community, instead of just, like, kind of stand out as, like, the one weirdo, that actually wants to be kind of, like, a guy who can be, like, a hero for these people, but at the same time, like, fits in as part of the community, which I think really helps out for, you know, stuff like later on. A bit that could be, like, so bad, like, right before the Riot of the Valkyries, where, like, he comes and is like, oh, we're, like, a troop of thespians. And, like, they do, like, the little oh, play right. for, like, a Harry Dean Stanton character. That could be, like, on paper, like, the most cringy debt bullshit. But in practice, like, it actually really works out for, like, especially that everyone's in on it. Like, that they're all trying to, like, kind of do, like, the play thing. It works out, and it feels, once again, like, he's just kind of like, let's actually kind of, like, bring everybody together with this, as opposed to, look at me and my stupid shtick. Like, this is also, this is the same year as the fourth Pirates movie, 
where Oof. the shtick just gets fully like run into the ground on that. Yeah. Well, and again, it's set up in the very beginning in the opening scene, the theatrics. And then when he goes into that town, you could say that that is him putting on the performance of trying to fit in with the town. And then he has that kind of light bulb moment when he's in the bar, when he realizes I could be anybody I want. And he comes up with the character and goes back to telling the same type of story that he was doing at the beginning of the film. And it even sets up like the, the bit earlier where we're kind of talking about the spirit of the West scene with the Clint Eastwood. Exactly. Scenario, right. Where like his, his guiding light is like the guy known for like the Western archetype. Um, which I just also love the detail of that where like he's got the um, the metal detector that he's looking around for stuff and then his like fake Oscar awards that are in the back of his fucking uh, right. <laughs> I love cart. Cart. I, I love that though. I think because it really does tie into kind of that performance angle of this, right? Because like yeah, I love that kind of like almost like imposter syndrome like reading on this movie where like he is he feels like a fraud and he like doesn't feel like he's actually a hero and I love this kind of moment of of him meeting Clint Eastwood, basically. Again, kids love Clint Eastwood. All the kids went out to see Sully in theaters. Um, but, like, just that sequence, him, like, having the Oscars in his golf cart is a very, you know, I don't want to say subtle because, like, it, it really shows it, but, like, it's not, like, remarked upon. And yet it is this moment of reading this, you know, of, like, it's Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. And it's kind of this rumination on Clint Eastwood and on like actors. The, yeah. The, the archetype of it, they have the balls to just say that this is the spirit of the West and give you the idea that this is probably Clint Eastwood. And really you don't know what is going on in the scene. We don't know what has created the scene. We don't know if it's an acid trip. We don't know if it's actually happening. It is in like this weird, like liminal. Like, is he dead? Is it like, yeah. an afterlife? Like, it, it is yeah. really, like, this weird space. I think and, yeah. And it's it's never explained, and it's never really talked about again. He 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 does reference it later. He said he talks to somebody and says, "Yeah, I met the spirit of the West," but it, it's like they had such courage to be esoteric about that scene. It's far more subliminal. It is not condescending to its audience. This is thoroughly both for kids and for adults. It's it's just enough for a kid to understand it. But if a parent was around, they would see it and they would get the ideology and get the ennui and the, uh, the existential crisis of the characters and uh, the idea of heroism. And, but... It is more interesting when you don't explain any of that to the audience and you just let them take take that in. You know, it sucks when your hand is getting held. And we we live in an era where people really want to deconstruct the narrative and point out how smart they are. And, you know, they want to have the, the series saying where, oh, you know, if this were a superhero movie, I would fall on the ground like this. Oh, hey, look, I fell on the ground like that. Ha, ha, ha. Right. The Deadpoolification <laughs> of cinema, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just like, how far can we go with this? We get it, guys. Like, we are watching the movie, too. There's only so long that, it, you know, it's kind of like it, someone pointed out recently that, like, kind of stand-up comedy is dead because we've talked about it all. I mean, what are we going to say? Like, hey, 
you know, I was microwaving macaroni and cheese this morning. Ha 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 ha. You know, I, like, I don't. Th- I don't think we've gotten to the true point of like, what is the deal with airline food, though? Really, <laughs> what is the deal with it? I mean, it is. It is that weird thing where, like, I feel like people think that they're you know so smart and they know all these tropes, and especially this movie, which is dealing a lot in like Western tropes, Western iconography and imagery and stuff like that. And it's like we know these tropes, so therefore we're smarter than them. But I think at least for, for me at least part of the reason we have those tropes is because you you kind of need them especially in a great story like this and i think gore verbinski really understands that you'd need a lot of that stuff and he tells it very sincerely even though this movie has like a couple of moments like um god there's that one moment where like before the flight of the valkyrie sequence and like one of the characters is like awkward that feels like one of those like i'm sure it was like a studio mandated like put that in there just for the kids or whatever that's my second least favorite line so right. the, fir- the right. first is the first is the urine sample and this the, the reason why i hate it is because it is against character i don't always hate things that are against character sometimes it can be done well sometimes it does not work well at all and that that i think was just it it was against type specifically because the crow character was depicted as so wise and I, I it it does not seem like he would not have like the modern lingo to me. Something I just thought of like just now is like when you were talking about like how this movie doesn't explain any like a lot of stuff. There's that like weird bit where they're like underground looking for the Harry Dean Stanton like crew, and there's like a giant eyeball in the background. Yeah, and there and one of the characters is just like that's a big one. And that's it? That's all they say <laughs> yeah. about it? That's all you need. And it's all you need. Yeah, it is just like, eh, big monster in the underground. That's all you need. That's it. Right. This yeah. is a, it's a living, breathing world. We don't need the answers. It's better that we don't have the answers. I don't need to see that whole creature. I don't want to see that whole creature. The eye is all I needed. That is good. That's, that's visual storytelling for me. And even like sort of what we were talking about earlier with like kind of like the breaking, you know, kind of the reality of the, the closest we get to that is something we somehow haven't mentioned while we were talking about this the whole time. The mariachi owls who pop up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you're like kind of talking to the audience the whole time. The Greek the chorus. Time, like, right, our Greek chorus, right. They, they have that kind of element to them. But at the same time, like those characters could in theory be like incredibly insufferable, but they add to like the texture that we were talking about earlier, just sort of like the the legend of the old West, this like story about who Rango is, and even when they kind of like have cheeky bits, like the whole like oh, and he will die later, and then at the very yeah. end they have just the like oh, you know, he might die say in a household accident, which often accounts for <laughs> like forty six percent. My favorite, <laughs> like during the second kind of part, they show up, and w- one of the ones to the right is like. When is he gonna die? And the other one's like, soon, soon, soon. <laughs> like, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Just, <laughs> I, you almost forget about them at a certain point in the movie, and then, but they come back at the end, and it it feel it's like, oh yeah, those guys, they were they've been here the whole time, and it feels so like uh, cozy, and I I just love their design and their outfits and everything. It, yeah, it's just they're they're so cool. So something of note is first off, I love Greek chorus characters. I'm glad you brought them up because I'm I had forgotten about them too. Uh, there, I love those guys. Uh, I come from a Latin family. Like my my mother is Hispanic, and uh, my father's side is all like German Irish. So I have, I'm a very weird split. But I love I love seeing Latin stuff in con- contemporary cinema. And any time that I see it, I, I just absolutely love it. I get a real kick out of it. But 
great chorus characters in particular i'm a big fan of you have the mice in the movie babe which yes. the, they they do all the title cards and everything like that throughout the throughout the the movie and so they're considerably subdued they uh they're they they have like much quicker screen time than the owls uh doing this and then you have like the slugs in flushed away the artiman animation film of course yeah and the the slugs i love those guys i would say that those are the closest approximation to the owls in this and it's because they they keep coming back in and singing different songs and stuff like that um except they don't do the narration uh they they're just focused on the songs and stuff like that again that goes back to how brilliant the script is and how many spinning plates there are and you know you forget all the elements and you forget that it's done very much like a, a three-act play i guess you would say it's like having the the type of plays that Rango himself is putting on at the beginning, middle, and end of the film. Right. You know, it, it harkens back to the 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 idea of the theatrical stage play. Which is why I would kind of actually equate them more to like uh, in Little Shop of Horrors, Christelle, Ronette, and Chiffon, the Greek chorus girls. Yes. Where they're like kind of come in and out of the movie and they don't like distract, but they actually they kind of transition from one story element to the next. Exactly, exactly. But you know, we've been talking about Rango for a while. So why don't we go ahead and let's do a wrap-up here. Let's do our final thoughts. Spedro, uh, your final thoughts on Rango. Any other things we didn't mention or just your overall summation about Rango? I just really love this movie. I would say that this is really good entry-level adult animation. We kind of uh, yeah. struck on struck on that earlier. If you have a, uh, a child that you don't want to necessarily introduce to violent animation, such as... Uh, you know, what you would find in like a heavy metal or Japanese animation like Akira. Uh, if you want to just get them into darker elements, this, Watership Down, Fantastic Mr. Fox. These are really great PG, oh, yeah. uh, darker animation with uh, little edgier themes. Uh, and they're also really good to uh, for people that are coming of age or even for... For people that are just kind of at a hard place in their lives, and they, you know, for me, it still speaks to me as, as someone who's still trying to find their way. And I think that there's a lot of power in that. There's not a lot of animated films that can still speak to someone of any age and speak on different levels. Be a great piece of animation, be and also be a emotional, spiritual journey. Uh, uh, Brian, your final thoughts on Rango? Oh yes. Um... I mean, this is a weird one for me, though, because like I like I mentioned earlier, like I remember when this movie came out and I was weirdly enough the perfect age for it, even though I never saw it because I I just had an aversion to Westerns. But I, I've seen it twice now and it really has grown on me even more on a second viewing because, I mean, you you, you put it very, really well, Savager, like it it is a movie that is perfect for someone like coming of age where maybe like not just like they're not ready but also like when i was a kid like my mom just like wouldn't let me watch like stuff that was too too violent but this feels like kind of a really perfect middle ground of it is still an adventure movie with lots of like fun characters and there's really great bits and gags and jokes and stuff like that but it is also a genuine western and a movie that loves westerns clearly like it shows gore verbinski's love of westerns and 
also the way that he kind of subtly puts in like anti-capitalist messaging in his movies, which is kind of the plot of the movie, right? Like evil man wants to take away water so that he can fund like Las Vegas or whatever, you know, it, it I, I just love the way that he puts political messaging into his movies. Like even the pirates movies watching those again, I was like, Oh, these are like about British colonialism and you know, the horrors of that in a weird way, even though they're still, it's still a Disney movie, you know, kind of just that element of it. I really love, I love the animation. I think it's just still stunning to this day. Like it is one of these weird, like this era of CGI animation where it's getting pretty good, actually. Like a lot of those early 2000s ones, which don't hold up, but around this time is when we're getting like tangled and you're getting frozen a couple years later where like it feels like, oh, okay, they've managed to make it look realistic but also still kind of retain that cartoonish elements and even though this is kind of a different process because of the um what do they call it e emotion capture is that what the, the right that of... was the kind of like the press version of what they were calling it yeah, right that process um even though it is that you still get like so much of the the style like just, it's so weird it's so wacky the characters move in such a weird way there's all like the weird like um you know, like Mouse Hunt, there's all these like weird like Rube Goldberg kind of sequences that like kind of like cascade <laughs> out. And yeah, the cast is great. Some of the fucking coolest character design ever, maybe. I, I just, anytime I can just watch like the Rattlesnake Jake, he's just, he's insane. It's so cool. So many sections I love from this. I love that Flight of the Valkyries section. And yeah, it, it really is growing on me. And I, I really have just kind of gotten a new appreciation for Gore Verbinski as truly just like you mentioned earlier, like the kind of almost last of a breed of these kind of filmmakers who make films on a massive budget, like hundred million plus and still kind of retain a lot of that creativity and imagination and interesting, like innovative qualities. And yeah, I, I, I just love it. But yeah, Thomas, what, what about you? Uh, yeah, I agree with what both of you guys have said. I think it's, it's a really unique and, as we mentioned, atypical sort of like big budget uh, kind of uh, uh, animated film that definitely feels like of a, a different breed that just doesn't exist anymore. And it kind of weirdly ties into a lot of th the thematics, I think, of this movie, where we, we didn't talk a lot about sort of like the mayor and sort of his, the reveal of like how he's like this evil capitalist uh, you know, sort of person who's trying to like really destroy whatever this like old West town has. Like he's just says like, Oh, it's all dying. It's going to be gone. And using Rango basically as a pawn for like, yeah, sure. You can be like their hero or whatever, distract them basically. While I continue to like deplete their water supply and just try and, you know, become a businessman. Even like, I love when he turns on rattlesnake Jake and just like, no, look, there's no need for gunslingers. Now we're businessmen. The right. Guy's just like, we got new hats. <laughs> which is a great thing in this movie but yeah it feels like it kind of like relates to this movie where it feels kind of like as animation has become so much more of like a homogenized industry of like it has to be a pixar it has to be a dreamworks or it can be like a disney modern one which feels like we're kind of still like extrapolating from like a lot of the pixar isms that were like created by the toy story movies and really homogenized forward after that and i think that it kind of fits for like rango as a movie 
which feels truly just like this weird, odd experiment that could really only happen at this particular time with this particular kind of like directorial vision behind it or even like, you know, the for all the problems with him, the depth element of it, of just like, let's actually just do this like weird cartoonish uh, kind of exploration of like what the, the Old West was and what that kind of like means in the modern context. But at the same time, just have like these like incredibly... Uh, elaborate action sequences and also this existentialism we've been talking about about like what you sort of like your places in the universe and everything like that it's such a unique odd beast of a movie that um you know i would hope that in like a modern context where now we've had like you know some of these animated franchises not really panning out as much like a lot of other big franchises i hope it kind of allows for an interesting new burst of like animation that kind of maybe feels more in this vein as opposed to like what we've been kind of getting recently I did just think of one more thing. Just, just one, one more thing. thing. One, one more, more thing. thing. Yes. Right. A, a really interesting thing, I think, to kind of talk about, which we didn't talk about, like, the the Oscar category is, uh, that this was in, but I think this is a really interesting Oscar win because we mentioned it's not Disney or Pixar. And I was like, oh, wh- why is that? What What was Disney and Pixar putting out this year? And I realized Disney put out the 2011 uh, Winnie the Pooh movie, which I think is pretty good, by the way. I, I really like that movie. But then, like, Pixar was putting out, like, Cars 2, which right. is really the, the, the their bottom, like, truly just the nadir of Pixar cinema and made a lot of money, but is so awful. And so I think it's it's interesting to think about that the two the one year that Disney and Pixar, Disney Pixar flopped, this kind of swooped in to kind of win Best Animated Picture, which I think, I think is so is so cool. Right. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, they, you might be able to argue that they almost did that in 2001, in 2002, uh, in that they kind of DreamWorks swooped in and stole it from Monsters Inc. I love, I love both Shrek and Monsters Inc. I, but I would say on, a, on most days, I would probably pick Monsters Inc. And, and Shrek was such an outlier that year. It was a cultural storm. There was no way I don't think they would have not yeah. given it to him. And even, you know, the next year, they gave it to Spirited Away. Right, you know? right, yeah. So yeah. for a while there, they were for transgressive animation. And then they realized that Disney pays a lot of the bills. And so, you know, it became the Disney category because, you know, they they have the money to put in the animation. So obviously they're going to dominate animation. Well, I think it's partially that and also kind of like the stereotype of Academy voters being like, well, my kids loved Finding Nemo. Yeah. It's like I'm Finding right. Nemo. And it's like something I can sit through or whatever. Right. Uh, which, exactly. And right. it's also what they will see. They're not going to see the Miyazaki movie, you know, because right. the, the contemplative two-hour Miyazaki movie, they're not going to see that. Though these, these types of premium animations, we don't get them anymore. Transgressive animations. And I mean... Something that I'm working on right now, obviously adjacent to the documentary, is I'm trying to get Ralph Bakshi in my documentary and do an episode. I just signed on Charles Swenson and Picha, who uh, are two other X-rated animators. Everybody else is dead. Mm -hmm. We need adult animation. We need voices in adult animation. We need adult animation in particular that is not just fart jokes and smoking weed and saying <laughs> and saying fuck and and you know being horny. You know we need real adult animation and and unfortunately in the mid two thousands there it became just about dick and fart and fat. You know all all the the terrible 
jokes that we could, you know, being anti-PC, you know, it was the South Park effect and things like drawn together. And uh, we've kind of ruined that. We need to get back to films like Bakshi did, which are more adult in theme and are not afraid to tackle those themes in a non-condescending way. Which is especially interesting given even, like, that we should mention that, like, Rango won Best Animated Feature, but it was nominated against, like, a couple more familiar ones, like Kung Fu Panda 2 and Puss in Boots, the original Puss in Boots. But then also the French movie A Cat in Paris, and then the Spanish movie uh, Chico and Rita, which is, like, such a fascinating, like, lineup that includes no Disney movies like we were mentioning earlier. And even, like, something like A Kung Fu Panda 2 is, like, very, like, experimental in its animation, very odd for what it's trying to do. And I think that's the thing that we're kind of missing is that, like, that kind of diversity in animation. And there's a quote, actually, that I have here in the notes from Verbinski, who mentions some of the influences you're referring to, where he says, quote, uh, There are shackles with budgets and profit margins with animation. You want to compete with what they're doing at Pixar and DreamWorks. There's a price tag, which is in terms of achieving that quality level. What happened to the Ralph Bakshis of the world? We're all sitting here talking about family entertainment. Does animation have to be family entertainment? I think at that cost, yes. There's the bullseye you have to hit. But when you miss it at a little bit, and you do something interesting, the bullseye is going to move. Audiences want something new, they just can't articulate what. And I think, you know, like, Arango feels like something different. It feels like something interesting. That, honestly, you know, I, I hope, like he mentioned, that we can kind of, like, now that Illumination can't just put out Migration and make it a massive hit, or whatever, <laughs> like, that we can actually have just, like, interesting things that, like, come out of it. Like, I hope, you know, like, Arango can kind of you know, hopefully we can go back to, like you were mentioning, something more experimental, something more interesting that isn't talking down to kids like Rango is. And Rango feels like family entertainment in the best kind of way where it's like it appeals to, like, any member of a family. Where yes. it's like you can have kids, like, have, like, fun with some of these jokes and an adult have fun with those jokes. Even an older person have fun with, like, some of the references in the Western genre and stuff like that. It feels like we're, we're kind of missing that from modern animation. And hopefully, you know, we can get something similar to Rango in the future. Uh, but let's go ahead and uh, wrap up on Rango, and let's go ahead and do our regular segment, Between the Lines. So uh, Between the Lines is a segment that we do every episode where Brian, myself, and a guest, if they so choose, uh, can recommend another movie that, you know, is either related to the one that we're talking about or has, you know, uh, some kind of connection to, like, say, an A for atypical choice uh, for this particular season. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and go first. And uh, my recommendation was another nominee a couple years after Rango won. Um, it didn't win Best Animated Feature, but it was a nominee. And uh, it feels very underseen, especially compared to what won the year that uh, it came out. I have um, what was released here, at least, as My Life as a Zucchini, um, which is a French film uh, that uh, is stop-motion animated and is basically the story of uh, this young boy um, who is named Zucchini, um, who basically is, uh, at the beginning, uh, 
ends up being orphaned in a horrible accident. Um, and he ends up becoming a part of like an orphanage. He ends up moving there and he ends up, you know, kind of meeting a bunch of kids who have similarly had like issues with, uh, you know, either parents who have died or parents who have been abusive and stuff like that. And it's just about this kid kind of like living his little life. And uh, it, I should mention it's uh, directed by uh, Claude Barras, but also one of the screenplay writers is Celine Sciamma, who you all might know oh. from like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, among some other things. And uh, it's a sweet little um, stop-motion French movie that deceptively looks very, like, cutesy in a way where um, I would definitely recommend if you um, do watch this and say you have children, um, probably temper your uh, expectations in terms of uh, what they can handle because it is uh, the very opening of this movie in which you find out basically how Zucchini gets orphaned is very upsetting, very untraditional, uh, very atypical, as it were, for, like, a stop-motion animation movie especially. Um, but... It, at the same time, does have a lot of great sort of just interaction between kids that feels like very genuine, very sweet, very earnest. Um, and it, it's dealing with like a lot of complicated subject matter. Um, but at the same time, it's like beautiful stop motion style. And it also is like we mentioned, it's not talking down to kids at all. I feel like a kid can, with proper context and a proper sort of like understanding from an adult, can like really get engaged in this like very sweet, earnest story about just like kids who feel kind of lost, like coming together. And uh, it's an amazing little movie. It also is only 65 minutes long. It's very short, but it does such a great job of really investing you in these uh, little kid characters. And despite how cute it looks, really grounding the emotions in a really true, vibrant way. Uh, And it feels like it kind of got lost, especially this was the year that Zootopia won for Best Animated Feature. Which I would say, yeah, uh, a movie that has uh, aged like milk uh, for various reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think this one definitely deserves a lot more attention. I don't know. Have either of you seen My Life as a Zucchini? I have. I, I remember watching it around the time it came out. And, yeah, I agree with everything you said. It, it is such a beautiful and cute movie. And yet it, like we talked about with Rango, of, like, very mature themes. And uh, th- there's something I think about a lot with, not to shit on the Mario movie again, but I remember when the Mario movie <laughs> came out l- last year. Um, I think David Lowry, he he released kind of post where he was talking about like animated movies and kids and like, why do we have to talk down to kids? And like that movie especially is a movie that treats children with respect and really treats their emotions and their feelings with a lot of respect, which a lot of like the, you know, God bless a lot of what Pixar does, but like they don't tend to do that a lot and they do tend to talk down to and condescend a bit especially modern pixar movies tend to do that yeah. right yeah and especially dreamworks and illumination they they do that like all the time but i love that that movie kujet i just love anytime he's just like kujet it's adorable right. yeah it, it's a movie that really treats children with respect and really treats what they're going through and and everything with respect which i love i love seeing it in animated movies um in any movie really but like yeah it, it's a really fantastic movie and yeah it is really short um in it's lovely it's a lovely movie all right um brian go ahead what's your recommendation for between the lines this week so for my pick which i i struggled with this week I, i'm picking a movie that won no oscars and wasn't even considered for an oscar because no one no one liked it <laughs> uh another gore Rubinsky film the last movie he made up until this point I'm recommending A Cure for Wellness. Holy shit, this movie. Um, <laughs> you know, we talked a lot about Gore Verbinski's kind of sensibilities when it comes to, like, 
adventure and really fun type of movies. And yet he also is a guy, we mentioned Del Toro earlier, who is really interested in horror and genre in this way, but in a way where he doesn't like cheapening it and he really elevates it to, I can't use that word anymore because elevated horror is a stupid term, but like (laughs) he really elevates like horror to like an adult movie kind of way. Um, And this movie, which came out in, in 2016, 2017 is, such a fucking weird movie. It, it has so much of what he has kind of done in other movies, including Rango, of like this very anti-capitalist message in this movie with in which capitalism is literally a disease, a societal like disease that is infecting everything and everyone. And yet it is also this quasi-Lovecraftian story. I, I love the setup for this movie, which is maybe one of my favorite setups in, in a story from a story perspective, which is a group of people hire a guy to find another guy, right? So this movie is like right. all these Wall Street people hire Dane DeHaan's character to go find uh, the, the like CEO who's in like the Swiss Alps, and they're like, go find him, bring him back, and then of course like madness happens and and whatever. But like I, I've just always loved that idea. Like I love it in like Apocalypse Now. Um, I love a movie like um, Ad Astra which is like basically apocalypse now in space. Um, <laughs> but I just love that conceit and I just love the kind of Lovecraftian elements of this, of, of this secret uh, uh, facility where secrets are housed and it's got this ancient history there and it's very dark. It, 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 the castle just looks incredible. All the sets look unbelievable. This movie looks phenomenal. I, um, I got a Blu-ray of it, which was kind of harder to track down than you would think. Because they're all just off the shelves. Everyone wants to get a cure for wellness. <laughs> Give me that cure, man. It is it is such a crazy, weird movie. And I understand why like no one liked it upon release. Because it's a two and a half hour, very slow and kind of oppressive horror movie. But it really was kind of the thing that really hammered down that Gore Verbinski and Mines as like sensibilities are really tied together. I just love the way that like I, I talked about how he, I love his slapstick, you know, kind of goofiness, but I love the way that he handles like this these darker elements, the way he's shooting them with just these really incredibly expressive angles and c- cinematography choices. Um, would would you argue that that is his one for me? Like he did a bunch that he did an entire career of one for them so he could do that film. It certainly feels that way because because looking at Gore Verbinski's career, there's like before this, he makes The Lone Ranger, which is a massive bomb. And then like in between that is, of course, um, he was also tied to direct The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, the like Ben Stiller movie before he took over and, and decided to direct it. And then, of course, there was the Bioshock movie which he was, like, really attached to. He wanted to do all kinds of crazy, insane-sounding, like, practical sets. And I feel like he carried a lot of that over to this movie. And it, it certainly feels like a real passion project. It, it almost feels like he has nothing to lose making this movie at times. Like, it's so bold in, in so many ways. 
and so not looking to please like a shareholder or make money or anything which is of course why this like it's his last movie he hasn't made a movie since it it, it did not do well i don't know it, it, it also is one of these movies that has gained kind of a, a small cult following i think because he wanted to make a bioshock game I, i'm pretty sure gore is a gamer you can just feel a lot of that in this movie i think like just a lot of the way that he's telling the story it feels very like like, like I need to know if Gore Verbinski has played Bloodborne because I feel a lot of those elements in this movie and I love a lot of those elements and I love this movie. I think it's great. Yeah, A Cure for Wellness. It, it, it's a divisive movie. I watched this actually around the time it was released actually with you, Brian, like yes. when we initially knew each other um, and uh, we were at a screening where it was very clear everyone fucking loathed it entirely. Just it was... It, and I remember having mixed thoughts on it at the time, and then I rewatched it earlier today, honestly, as part of like prep for the show. And I like it a lot more than I did previously. I still have some issues. I only think the two and a half hour runtime is necessary. I think you can cut a fair amount of stuff, make it like a solid two hour movie. And also, I'm not a big fan of the score, particularly that like that one child theme that like keeps constantly oh, sure, sure, repeating sure. throughout the whole movie necessarily. But um, I think it's a better vehicle for Dahan than some of the... Because oh, that was around yeah. the time he was trying to... They were trying to inject him into stuff like um, Valerian and stuff like that, which feels all, like it doesn't quite work for him, I would say, in terms of like being a leading man in that kind of movie. Versus this feels like it works perfectly, where like he's a sniveling kind of asshole who slowly realizes, like, oh, wait, my entire existence is meaningless. Oh, and God. like all the stuff that unravels about that. And this, also, this is the first time I saw Mia Goth in anything. Right. She was just yeah. like, in, right from the start, just like, what a peculiar actress. Right. In yes. like so many ways. Um, and also, Jason Isaacs is very good. I would say it's one of the really better recent uses of him. Yeah. Um, and sort of like a main villain role and stuff like that. And I think it, it's a much better movie than I think people gave it credit for at the time. I would definitely say that it deserves a lot more attention. It definitely does, doesn't deserve to be like his last movie as of yet, necessarily. Definitely, no. you know, kind of, we've, we've referenced, say, like Spike Jones making another movie, Gore. Gore, Make another please. Movie. There's Gore a few gets... things. There's a few things he's attached to. One of which I think is like the most interesting thing, which is this thing called Sand Kings, which is a um, right. like a George R. R. Martin script or a story, um, which sounds interesting. Which go for it. I, I would love for him to make something else. One, one of those things in like a lot of like development turnaround, which has happened with yeah. a lot of things. Like he was one of many people attached to that Gambit movie that never happened. Oh man, not the Gambit movie, right? <laughs> yeah. One of many people got handed that hot potato and then threw it to like Doug Lyman, I guess. I don't know after that. <laughs> or whoever. Uh, but yeah, Cure for One is pretty solid. I definitely recommend if you maybe didn't even like it the last time you saw it. If you did somehow, we're one of the few people who saw it in theaters uh, back in like 2017. I would say give another shot. But Savedro, what is your recommendation? Well, after those recommendations, I'm going to feel kind of bad because I am unfortunately recommending a Johnny Depp film. Uh, and it's because there are there are multiple ties. The reason why I'm recommending this is because this is not a traditional Johnny Depp film. As we had stated previously, obviously the shtick of Depp ran dry in the mid-2010s. And uh, he has not recovered from that ever since. If you want to see... Johnny Depp, when he was not a fuck up, and he was he was still at a very interesting, provocative time in his career. In 1995, he was in a, a very interesting film, and in my opinion, maybe his best work uh, is in uh, 1995's Dead Man. It's been described as an acid western. It's directed by Jim Jarmusch, so if you are familiar with the Jarmusch aesthetic, 
which very difficult difficult to explain if you have not seen his his, his style of films. Yeah, but it is uh, it's shot entirely in monochrome. The cinematographer is Robbie Mueller, who's the same. He worked with Wim Wenders on a lot of different films. You have definitely seen his work on To Live and Die in L.A., Down by Law, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, Repo Man, Paris, Texas. The guy's got a lot of great credits behind him, so the the movie looks fantastic. The score is done by Neil Young, uh, so it has this really trailing, otherworldly wow guitars yeah just yeah it it has a very trippy feel to it it has a a couple of different ties to rango so not only does it have johnny depp it also has alfred molina yes all right (laughs) another tie is that it is the final film of robert mitchum uh and rango is the final voice role and in one of the final roles of ned Beatty. So mm-hmm. it has it kind of has that tie of old school actors. This is one of their final roles. It also has Lance Henriksen, Crispin Glover, Michael Wincott, John Hurt, Iggy Pop, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Billy Bob Thornton. So it's an incredible cast. It is not traditional. Something great that this film does is it has a very uh, non-stereotypical Native American perspective. Uh, it has... There's entire sections that are in Cree and Blackfoot that are not translated at all for Americans. And they are specifically put into the film to be inside jokes for the Cree and the Blackfoot people. That's incredible. Never see any movie that has the balls to do something like that. It went out of its way to portray Native Americans as accurately as possible. They're not bumbling idiots or, you know, they're uh, or drunkards or anything like that. They're realistic human characters. The Crow character from Rango ripped straight out of the Native American character, Nobody, from Dead Man. Um, But I think overall, it it holds up very well. And if you are wanting something similar in uh, vain to to Rango, that is also a Western uh, and also has a stacked cast and also is very trippy trippy visually and uh, is not afraid of being about something else, uh, then I think you would enjoy it. Yeah, I I love this movie. It's one of my favorite Jarmusch movies, I think. Um, and it's really grown on me as I've seen it like multiple times. Maybe one of the best scores in any movie, in my opinion. Like I, I just lo- I love a, a, a all guitar score, but particularly just Neil Young's guitar. It just it sounds so like it, I don't know. He's doing something to that guitar, and it's 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 like it's otherworldly in a way like just i don't know there's something about it that i think is so gorgeous and yet like menacing and ethereal almost even though it is like just electric guitar i don't have i don't i don't want to tell the full thing but there's this really great story that jarmusch tells about doing the the score for it where he like basically filled a microphone a room with microphones and neil young was in it and they kind of had, like, Jim Jarmusch was kind of like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work, because, like, blah, 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 blah. And Neil Young, like, overheard them and was like, I got it. It's fine. And then Jarmusch kind of tells us, like, he ends the story by going, like, never, never doubt Neil Young. He's he's too smart for everybody. Never, <laughs> never doubt him. Um, but yeah, I, I love this movie. I think it's great. It is so truly trippy and in, in, in that kind of spiritual way, though, and, like... 
it, it feels so otherworldly, so weird in that Jarmouche way, but also like in that Jarmouche way of there are hangout elements of it, and yet there are like weird, just mad, crazy bits in it, um, which is the, what he does so well. Um, and I think it also is a great Depp performance. It really is like if you want to see when he he really had the juice, like this is a really great example. Understated. Wood. Yeah, it, it's very it's a very understated performance. He's not doing like a ton. Yeah, and like you said, the cast is in, is incredible. Like I I love Jared Harris and uh, Gabriel Byrne as well being in it as well. I love both of them. But yeah, um, Thomas, have you seen this movie? I just saw this movie a couple oh, days ago yes. because Savedro <laughs> told me he was recommending this. So I'm like, you know, I finally need to see this because for a while, Dead Man was just kind of like my sort of poster child for like when I was like younger, just like, this is an art movie. Like that I heard sure. from so many people, just like, this is a, a really great little art movie. But I hadn't seen it for so long. And I decided, you know, it's on Criterion Channel mm-hmm. as of, I think, still when we're releasing this, it'll be on Criterion Channel. Yeah, so I decided to finally watch it, and um, yeah, it's a great movie, I think. Especially, like, I agree with you, it's a very understated depth performance. But just to shout out uh, the the guy who plays Nobody, Gary Farmer, who's a great First Nations actor, who's been in, like, a bunch yeah. of different things, but is incredible in this particular movie. He does such a great job, especially, like, his whole backstory and the tragedy of that, how he comes from, like, two different, like, his uh, parents from two different tribes, and then he was basically, like, kidnapped over to Britain, where he was treated as just, like... Um, you know, as a spectacle, essentially. And then he kind of, like, learning from those ways and then coming back only to be abandoned by his people and all this other stuff. So being nobody, it feels like such a tragic, like, really earnest, like, performance that bounces off of Depp pretty well. And like you mentioned, all the other great people in that amazing cast. Like, it's a great final performance from Mitchum. John Hurt shows up, and he's really great for his little bit. Um, yeah, and the, the whole scene where it's, like, it's Iggy Pop, Jared Harris... And Billy Bob Thornton. It's such a weird trio so for weird. the two of them to run into. It's so <laughs> wild. And I, I also love the way it looks, particularly any of the scenes in those, uh, in like the woods, where it's those stark, like white trees oh, yeah. that are just like, it looks gorgeous. Like truly like an incredibly well rendered movie. I, I haven't seen a lot of Jarmouche. I want to catch up more. I mean, I would still say my favorite is still uh, Ghost Dog, uh, but this is like not far from it. By any degree, it's definitely one I would recommend to people. Even if you kind of have that aversion to Depp, it is, I agree, one of the better examples of him trying to shed that like 21 Jump Street kind of like boyish good looks thing and doing it with like an actual interesting kind of like art movie as opposed to, you know, doing a funny voice and a goofy accent. But yeah, let's go ahead and repeat our titles like we usually do uh, for Between the Lines in case you want to add them to your watch lists on Letterboxd and whatnot. Um, my recommendation was the 2016 Academy Award-nominated animated film, My Life as a Zucchini, or My Life as a Courgette, if you want to go with the French title. Uh, yes, and I had Gore Verbinski's 2017 film, A Cure for Wellness. And I had 1995's Jim Jarmusch film, Dead Man. Yes, and we're going to be uh, wrapping up here, so we want to you know thank some people as we head out. Uh, we want to thank uh, Burial Grid for our music for the show. Purchase his music at burialgrid.com. Thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Uh, find her at mishkyle96 on Twitter. And thanks to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinema number two letter. For just $1 a month, you all get access to, you know, bonus podcasts we put out every month. And uh, also you get to pick certain episodes we do for seasons. Uh, we should mention, you know, this is going to be our uh, season finale. And we're going to take a bit of a break 
uh, throughout March on the main feed, but on Patreon, we got a lot of stuff coming up, Brian. We got our Los Awards, which is our version of the Oscars, which should have been up by the time this is released, uh, where Brian and I, you know, pick our best film, best actors, and cinematography, all this other stuff. Uh, we're in the process of getting ready to record that soon, but it should be up by the time this episode's out. There's also going to be, um, we're going to do stuff like another uh, one of our video rabbit holes where Brian and I are going to talk over a bunch of different Oscar clips that I've put together, a big YouTube playlist uh, that you'll have access to if you're a patron. And uh, we'll do uh, some audio reviews uh, in the meantime. Like uh, we would have done Drive Away Dolls recently, the um, Ethan Cohen solo movie. And then in March, we're going to be doing one, of course, we gotta, about Dune 2. Dune. Uh, we got to go full Dune. Uh, you know, we talked about sand and deserts a lot here. Oh, boy. <sighs> Get ready for us to return to Arrakis. Desert power. All of that. Yes, desert power, for sure. And the big thing, our big bonus episode for March is going to be, uh, you know, back when this was the Double Edge Devil Bill feed, we did March Madness. Uh, we're returning to that this year with a big March Madness thing about movie monsters. Yes, we're talking about a bunch of the, you know, different, like 32 different titles, some of which were chosen by our patrons, some of which were chosen by Brian and myself and our guests that'll be on that particular episode. Those tend to go long, so it's going to be, if you're missing out on content on the main feed, oh boy, that's going to be a long-ass episode (laughs) where we just, you know, pit different movie monsters against each other in a March Madness-style bracket and determine the best movie monster um, as, you know, is law. It'll be a confirmed law. This is what the best movie monster of all time is, and we will determine it. Yep. Scientifically, actually. Scientifically, yes, that's true. Um, And uh, you'll get access to all that stuff for just the $1 a month, and it really helps out the show, really keeps things going. And, you know, not to uh, maybe pull a certain card, but uh, this episode, if all goes right, will be coming out on my birthday. So, you know, wow. good birthday present. Become a patron. Happy sure. birthday. Watch Rango for, yeah. for Thomas's birthday. Happy early birthday. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're recording this a bit earlier, yes. But, uh, yeah, so for just, like I said, the $1 you can access to all that stuff. But we have one more person to thank, and that's our guest, Savedro. Thank you so much for yes. being a guest. Thank you. Really appreciate it so much. Go ahead and plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, thank you, first off, for having me on the show. The fact that anybody is uh, takes me seriously at all is wonderful to hear. It's an honor to be on a show like this and talk to people that care so much about cinema. If I'm going to plug anything, it would be my YouTube series, which is Sights Obscene, while making my big project, which is Aberration History of the NC-17. I had always wanted to make a YouTube series that was specifically about censorship and the rating system. Right now, I'm in the process of creating themed episodes Uh, that specifically feature interviews that I'm now getting. So if you want to find out more, any of my accounts are at Savedro, S-A-V-E-Y-D-R-O, or you can find me at Sites Obscene on YouTube. And then uh, you can also find out more about the uh, aberration there. But I just, I always do updates on Twitter. Twitter is the best account to, to follow me. It's not the best, you know, and unfortunately, is a terrible website, and uh, it's it's worth worth has gone down a lot. But um, every single day, I am posting about stuff, and so it's more important than ever that people would be aware not just of ratings, but of censorship in general. But yeah, I would recommend everybody definitely like um I, I'll say this much uh, with Twitter as much as that site is like dying horribly. Um, I think you're one of the better follows that I have on there. Quite frankly, you have like such interesting 
like tidbits that you put out there uh, on the site. And also I do agree. Thank I love uh, sites obscene, uh, particularly you just recently re put out the uh, PG 13 F bombs is a really good one. Uh, you can also, you know, follow us and our little rinky dink operation at cinema number two letter on the various socials, like, you know, Instagram, blue sky, uh, Twitter, whatever hell site you use. Um, and you can find me on uh, Twitter and letterboxes at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And I just want to shout out, uh, during the break as well, um, I will be uh, doing a recording with uh, Rafe Telsch, uh, as well as uh, with Emily Slade and Mel Gore, um, where we're going to be talking about the Oscars for this year. Um, you know, we've been doing this the last couple of years where we talk about the major nominees and what we thought about them. Uh, we'll be doing that again this time. not sure which feed of Rafe's that I'll be on. If it's the Have Not Seen This feed, which has been dormant for a while, or if it'll be on his Never Say Die podcast. But if you follow us on social media, I'll make sure to, you know, post it for sure, uh, whichever one that's going to be on. Um, so, yeah, just follow me and I'll make sure to post uh, that fun discussion that'll come out before the Oscar ceremony happens. Uh, yes, and I'm also on that awful place known as Twitter.com still sometimes. Um, at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three. Uh, or you can also follow me on Letterboxd, where I'm much more active as I watch a bunch of movies and uh, make my way through the Coen Brothers movies still. So, uh, yeah, that's so much fun. So, yeah, follow me on there. And for more of us in audio form, please you know, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows that are here on the network? And you can also dig into the archives in our Podbean main feed uh, for you know all four seasons of Cinema to the Letter and also all the old double-edged double bill stuff you can find on there. And nothing else if you can't support us uh, you know, on the Patreon. We get it, money can be tight, but the free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. Make us the true uh, sort of hero and spirit of the West. But on that note, as I mentioned, this is the end of our fourth season, and we're going to be taking a bit of a break in March, but we're coming back on April 23rd with season five, uh, which will be very interesting because it's going to be the first time uh, we're going to be covering a franchise as uh, one of our seasons. We're going to be doing a season starting on April 23rd about... Godzilla. That's right. Godzilla has a 70th anniversary this year, and you'll be able to, uh, you know, listen to us talk about it. And you might be asking, hey, how do you fit the eye for Indy and some of the other stuff with your format into the show? Don't worry. We, we talked about this. Brian and I made it work out. We have and bent those rules, let me tell you. <laughs> oh boy, bent them in interesting ways. You'll find out. Uh, but we should mention, you know, what we talked about the Patreon earlier. About a week specifically from when this episode is coming out on uh, March 6th, that Wednesday, we'll be putting out a poll uh, for one of the episodes in the Godzilla season. You all get to pick uh, the A for a typical choice between Godzilla versus Hidora, or Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Or uh, Godzilla vs. Megalon, two of the 70s-era Godzilla movies. Two very weird, odd Godzilla movies that um, I'm curious to, you know, cover either. I'm a big Godzilla fan. Brian has seen a couple, but isn't yep. quite as well-versed, so this will be a bit more of an introduction to him. So, uh, yeah, definitely, if you become a patron, you can vote between those two movies, and we'll cover that as our season finale for next season. And uh, we should also just have one brief shout-out as well, that uh, in March, we will put something out on the main feed. We'll be putting out um, the animation March Madness from last year, back during the Double H Double Bill days. So you'll be able to hear myself and Adam Thomas, the host of Double H Double Bill, as well as friends of the show, uh, Heil Peralta, 
Rafe Telsch and Scott Johnson uh, determining the best animated film. Um, Pluck that from behind the Patreon paywall and put it on the main feed in March. So you get to listen to that one was like nearly five fucking hours long. Um, so a lot of fun there. Uh, that'll be near the end of the month to coincide with the one that'll be on the Patreon uh, for March Madness this particular year. And, uh, you know, on that note, everybody, I think it's time we end this episode. It's time, uh, you know, we ride off on our bats. Let's do it. Let's get out of here. Let's ride off on those bats together. Dude, I'd put that on a tortilla. <laughs>